This is a tiny podcast hosted by someone even tinier. I am not famous. I never make the news, and I still haven't made the news. I was, however, arrested, as some of you know, in Washington, D.C. last Thursday. I'm going ahead with today's show. Now, I try not to hold anything back, but on this specific incident, I cannot comment on an ongoing criminal matter. And that is all I'll be saying about this, unfortunately. Thank you to everyone who contacted me. I will have plenty to say when this matter is settled. All I can tell you is this. If you're an American citizen or if you're thinking of visiting America, do not get arrested. This is coming from a middle-aged white man who has zero outstanding bench warrants, no priors. A middle-aged white man who, because of the way I look and sound, could be mistaken for an upstanding member of society. If this is what I went through, all I can say on the matter is do not get arrested. Welcome to the mop-up for Juneteenth, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 70 degrees and sunny. I have never been more grateful to be back in New York City, this malignant cesspool of rotting narcissists. The noise, the stench, the emotional and physical impositions. I'll take all of it over what passes for civility in Washington, D.C. Today is Juneteenth, a national holiday celebrating the end of slavery in the United States. And by slavery, I mean dark-skinned Africans held against their will by private landowners to work on their plantations. Dark-skinned Africans were treated no differently than physical lifeless property, traded and sold and separated from mothers and children like animals. Free labor. Slavery was about free labor. Cotton, sugarcane, and tobacco had to be picked. The most efficient way to keep labor costs down was not to pay for labor. It was to round up Africans, bring them to America, and pay them nothing other than food, water, clothing, and a roof over their heads. They were stacked onto ships like pieces of plywood brought to this country in shackles and airless, windowless coffins, and the ones unlucky enough to survive were sold to the highest bidder. We're talking about not just men, but women and children as well. As Professor Adnan Hussein and Professor Gerald Horn taught us on this show last year, The idea of race was invented here in North America to justify slavery. Academics, theologians working for the slave traders at the time, couldn't complete this total and all-encompassing dehumanization of Africans until they invented a justification. And that justification is the concept of race. Race was invented here in America. Isn't it interesting that America invented jazz, baseball, stand-up comedy, and race? And what do they all have in common? All four never would have been worth talking about without Africans. When you see someone as white or brown or yellow, that is not saying somebody's race. That is an act of dehumanization that Americans were trained to perform to justify subjugating people of color. There is no such thing as race. Let me repeat. This is something Professor Adnan Hussein first taught me. Race did not exist until those who profited off the slave trade needed to justify the brutal treatment of Africans and, of course, Native Americans. 
the white men who wrote our founding documents were not just racists, they invented racism. Without Thomas Jefferson, there is no eugenics program that begins in the early 20th century right here in the United States. Without our eugenics program that began right here in America, there is no science to bolster Hitler's theory of a master race. Without our founding fathers essentially coining the term master race, there is no Jim Crow South after the Civil War. And without our Jim Crow South, there is nothing for white South Africa to study in 1948 when they first implement apartheid. We didn't invent slavery here in America. We invented the justification for it, race. We didn't invent slavery, but we invented apartheid. Now, understand, Hitler's genocide, South Africa's apartheid, would have happened with or without our founding fathers. But our founding fathers provided the intellectual heft to justify these crimes against humanity. More importantly, our founding fathers and America proved to Hitler and South Africa that you can do all these things and get away with it. What's especially galling is our founding fathers baked all this into our nation's character, even though they knew it was wrong. Our founding fathers believed one thing and did the other for their own economic and political expediency. Racism is baked into our nation's soul, and so is the belief so is the belief that it's okay to believe one thing and do the opposite if it furthers your political or economic interests. Thomas Jefferson, who said all men are created equal in his Declaration of Independence, wrote nine years later in Notes on the State of Virginia, quote, that Africans were children who could not be taught. He wrote that, he said that, but he did not believe that. How could he? believe that when he had already taught his slave Sally Hemings to speak French and fathered several children with her. Thomas Jefferson told Americans that blacks weren't bright enough to learn. That's what he said. He did not believe that. He only wanted others to believe that because he could not part financially with his slaves because the men who voted for Thomas Jefferson needed their slaves. Monticello, Jefferson's mountaintop home, served as a tiny manufacturing town where his infamous Mulberry Row showcased all the goods and services produced and designed by his unteachable childlike slaves, who were accomplished carpenters, builders, blacksmiths, nail makers, and vintners. Thomas Jefferson, who said all Americans were entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, owned 600 slaves, many of whom were his own children. He never once openly denounced slaves, slavery. He kept slaves, and he also kept what he really believed about slavery to himself. The same way Republicans today denounce abortion while keeping to themselves what they really believe, not just about abortion, but what they believe about the people who are so intent on outlawing it. Trump, both Bushes, Ronald Reagan, 
they they support a woman's right to choose, but they keep that to themselves. And so baked into America's founding is the big lie, the willingness, if not the necessity, to say anything if it means not paying for labor or furthering your political agenda. Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776, the same year Thomas Jefferson wrote The Declaration of Independence. Capitalism and America were both set into stone in 1776. America arose not from the age of enlightenment, it arose from the age of capitalism. The enlightenment, Rousseau and Locke were merely fig leaves to disguise the stark naked greed that animated our nation's founding. We fought the British so we could sell tea that came from Holland. This was a war to free up the marketplace. It was wrapped in freedom, but freedom for white men, freedom for white men to make money. Hyman Roth in Godfather II could have been describing colonial America when he said of Cuba, quote, here we are protected, free to make our profits without Key Favre, the goddamn Justice Department, and the FBI 90 miles away in partnership with a friendly government. That's how America was founded, by white gangsters. It's no coincidence that going into 1776, the man leading our army, George Washington, was the wealthiest man in America. He was, George Washington, was, as Smedley Butler eventually described himself, a gangster for capitalism. That's who our founding fathers were. They believed only in freedom for themselves and only for those who looked and talked like them. 25, nearly half of the white men who signed the Constitution owned a total of 1,400 African slaves. Of the first 12 presidents, eight owned slaves. You cannot separate the founding of America from capitalism. America and capitalism were defined the very same year, 1776. You cannot separate capitalism from slavery. The great wealth Adam Smith describes was built on the scarred backs of slaves. You cannot separate America from slavery. White men were born with the inalienable right to free labor. That is the message of our Constitution, that white men were born with the inalienable right to free labor. And it's not just free labor. Our founding fathers saw these black human beings in and of themselves as an investment. From the time of its founding, America commodified human beings. Like the Nazis, Thomas Jefferson was a prodigious bookkeeper and wrote to George Washington, who also owned slaves. Jefferson told Washington that because his own slaves were reproducing at such a healthy clip, he was earning a 4% dividend each year off their offspring, who he could then sell. Jefferson marveled at his 4% profit off the slaves' yield. Not their agricultural yield, the children they yield. While Thomas Jefferson was making babies with his slave, Sally Hemings, he was breeding identical slaves so he could then sell them. Jefferson and Washington delighted in the commodification of human beings, and that delight continues to this day 
all the way up to Facebook and Google, who mine our very existence so they can sell that information to the highest bidder. It's not just our labor that has been commodified, it's our entire existence. In a much gentler iteration of slavery, our lives today are now commodities. Jefferson didn't write our Constitution. At the time of the Constitutional Convention, he was off in Paris with his slave, Sally Hemings. Our Constitution was written essentially by the equally degenerate slaveholder and fellow Virginian, James Madison. Our two founding documents, the Declaration of Indolence, Independence, and our Constitution were written by two Southern slave owners, both of whom knew intellectually and morally that slavery was evil, but not pernicious enough to end it. How many wars, how many industries since have we as Americans known full well were murderously evil, but not murderously evil enough to put an end to them? How many of us bear witness to human carnage but say nothing for fear it will be economically or politically disadvantageous? Jefferson and Madison knew slavery was wrong, but they protected it. They fought for it, created talking points used to this day like states' rights to defend it. Because in America, just because something is wrong, it doesn't mean we have to put an end to it so long as the right people can get rich off it. The Electoral College and the Senate were created to protect slavery, the same way the Senate filibuster was invented in the 20th century to protect the Jim Crow South. And all three are still being used today to keep the ancestors of our slaves in a diminished state economically and politically. James Madison owned a tobacco plantation. He drafted the Constitution as well as our Bill of Rights. He is one of three founding fathers to pen the Federalist Papers. If you're what they call a strict textualist sitting on the Supreme Court, one who interprets the Constitution by reading the original intent of our founding fathers, you study James Madison, who wrote it all. The Federalist Society gave us Judge Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, and the rapist, Brett Kavanaugh, because like Antonin Scalia, they all promised to read the Constitution through the prism of what James Madison meant when he drafted it. In other words, when they decide on, say, protecting voting rights for African Americans, the very first question they ask is, what would James Madison say? What would James Madison say? James Madison, who said Africans were not human, but rather property. And he died having never freed his slaves. James Madison, who came up with the idea to write into the Constitution that Africans should be counted as three-fifths of a human being. Not because he believed they were human beings, but because he wanted blacks to be counted in the census so southern states could get a larger share of congressmen. And so James Madison claimed Africans were not humans. But when it came time to getting more members of Congress apportioned to Virginia, he was willing to say African slaves were three-fifths of a human being because democracy is all about compromise. But what's truly evil about James Madison is he knew slaves were human beings. He lied to the country. Madison wrote in private diaries that he intellectually saw something seriously wrong with slavery, 
but decided not to free his slaves in order to maximize profits on his tobacco plantation. James Madison refused to speak out against slavery in order to gain a political foothold on the voters of Virginia, all of whom were white male owners of property, and a lot of that property happened to be slaves. This speaks volumes to our current political discourse in America. The man who drafted our Bill of Rights, the man who drafted our Constitution, the man whose original intent most of our Supreme Court justices divine before issuing a new ruling, that man, James Madison, said what he didn't believe to further his financial and economic agenda. Slavery was genocide, and James Madison knew that. But James Madison remained silent because that genocide satisfied his economic and political agenda. That's our sacred founding father, James Madison. Turns out here in America, evil happens when good men do something. And so that means baked into the founding of America is a patriarchy, a white patriarchy that is perfectly comfortable expounding positions they know are wrong, writing laws they know are wrong, supporting policies that they know are wrong, fighting wars that they know are wrong, so long as it all furthers either their economic or political agenda. We saw last week during the hearings that there are plenty of Republican lawyers who knew it was wrong to spread the big lie. They knew that Biden won. Lawyers, officers of the court knew they were overturning an election. They knew it was criminal. But they also knew our founding fathers believed that there's a difference between what you believe is right and what will further your political and economic agenda always err on the side on what will further your political and economic agenda. So say our founding fathers, John Eastman and Jeffrey Clark, who actually worked inside the Justice Department. They attempted to overthrow the election, our government, and they have more in common with James Madison than anybody sitting on the January 6th committee. Congressman Kensinger, Congresswoman Cheney, it pains me to admit our profiles in courage. By the very definition of JFK's book, Profiles in Courage, they are willing to pay a political price for what is right. James Madison and Thomas Jefferson were not profiles in courage. The original intent of our founding fathers was say and do whatever is necessary to keep white men in power. Were the men who wrote our founding documents products of the time? No. The times were a product of these white men. And so this country, America, is built on a nasty institutional lie. Enough Americans knew slavery was wrong. James Madison, who drafted our Constitution, writing in his notes on the federal con writing in his notes on the Federal Convention of 1787, called slavery one of the most oppressive exercises of power by man over man, and that it ran completely contrary, he said, to this age of enlightenment. While he was drafting the Constitution, he wrote that slavery was wrong. 
people knew slavery was wrong. And some people said it was wrong. And then there was Jefferson and Madison who wouldn't admit it was wrong. They said privately to themselves that slavery was necessary, but they knew deep in their hearts that slavery was evil. Therefore, they are evil. George Washington owned slaves. It's not like nobody told him it was wrong to rip the teeth out of one so he could be fitted with a set of lifelike dentures. He knew it was wrong. He did it anyway. He knew slavery was wrong. And that's why George Washington insisted that upon his death, all his slaves be freed. Why did so many Republican congressmen ask for pardons after January 6th? For the same reason you free your slaves after you die. You know you did something wrong. Now, of course, George Washington never had any children. We forget that the father of our country was either sterile or impotent. I suspect that had he fathered a child, he would have left them, those slaves, even knowing it was wrong. Our Constitution was written by men who knew slavery was wrong. They were told slavery was wrong. They admitted to themselves slavery was wrong, but defended it anyway. That makes them evil. Because they, they did this because it furthered their financial and economic agenda at the expense of America's soul. That's who every politician, every American leader, every intellectual here in the United States is. Most of us are our founding fathers. We remain silent. We say and do whatever it takes to further our economic or political agenda, no matter who suffers. Do you honestly believe Stephen Moore from the Club for Growth thinks cutting taxes for the wealthy will balance the budget? Of course not. But like our founding fathers, he says whatever it takes to further his own economic and political agenda. Do you really think Joe Biden believes private health insurance companies are better than Medicare for all? Do you really believe Joe Manchin thinks America has a perfectly functioning social safety net for children? Look at how the right wing will twist themselves into knots to justify an 18-year-old's right to purchase an AR-15. It is economically and politically expedient for the gun manufacturers, the NRA, and the Republicans to put as many AR-15s into the hands of as many people as possible. And they will say whatever it takes from we don't need new gun laws, we need to enforce the law, the law's already on the books, to the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And when that doesn't work, they say we need to arm kindergarten teachers with clocks. And then when that doesn't work, they say let's have one door so school kids don't die from gunfire, they die from a fire. That is who this country is. It's baked into our DNA. Say whatever it takes to protect your political and economic advantage. Our founding fathers were all pint-sized versions of Kellyanne Conway. Say whatever is necessary. Lie to the country. Lie to yourself. It doesn't matter what the truth is. All that matters is furthering your political and financial agenda. And so our founding fathers would look at today's Congress, today's federal government, and they would say our system works just the way we planned it. 
our government, the original intent of our government was to merge the political with the economic. Why did Lincoln fight the Civil War? Because slavery only became truly abhorrent to the North when the North realized it could no longer benefit financially from it. Slavery only became wrong in the North when slavery wasn't needed in the North. New York City almost seceded and joined the Confederacy because New York City was financing slavery, insuring slaves, commodifying slaves, as well as the crops they picked. New York City almost left the Union and joined the Confederacy because of that. In 1861, New York was America's financial hub and the newly formed Confederacy's financial hub. During the first three months of 1861, New York City Mayor Fernando Wood addressed the City Council of New York City over and over, proposing that New York City secede with, quote, our aggrieved brethren of the slave South. Eventually, New York City did the right thing. They stayed with the Union. But you could hear the conversation among New York liberals back then, the same conversation that echoes throughout New York City today. Yes, of course, slavery is wrong. Of course, I believe getting rid of it is essential. But let's not make sure the cure is worse than the poison. It's what we hear today about eliminating health insurance companies. What are you going to do? Destroy an entire sector of our economy? It's what we hear about guns. Gun manufacturers are part of our economy. We can't just wipe out an entire industry by regulating it to death. And... Yes, of course, I know America has destroyed Vietnam. Or, yes, I know America has destroyed Afghanistan. Or, yes, I know America has destroyed Iraq by sending those troops in. But if we remove the troops, we will only make things worse. Yes, of course, fossil fuels are destroying the planet. You think I don't know that? But to shift quickly to green energy and drastically destroy all those businesses, that's worse than global warming. That's who founded our country. The people who talk that way founded our country. Incrementalists, bullshit artists who will say whatever it takes to further their economic and political interests. Like I said, we are a nation of pint-sized Kellyanne Conways, or to put it another way, a nation of grifters. Our nation is run by waiters and waitresses who serve up a ham sandwich while insisting it's exactly what we ordered, macaroni and cheese. Macaroni and cheese. Uh, And we are a nation of customers who eat that ham sandwich convinced it's macaroni and cheese. We believe the lie, which is why we believe the slaves were freed on Juneteenth. But slavery continued, just continued under no name. The plantation was replaced by our prison system. And slavery, under the 13th Amendment, didn't end. It expanded, not to other states, but to other people, as well as black people. Our prisons became the new plantation. And some of those prisoners have white people in them. By now, I hope most of you are familiar with the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery in 1865, with the added loophole that anyone held in prison could be forced to work for free. 
By now, I hope you're familiar with Ohio State University law professor, civil rights activist, and author of the new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander, who reminds us there are now more African-Americans behind bars or under the watchful eye of our nation's parole system today than there were slaves in 1850. Professor Alexander famously writes that while black people make up 13% of our population, they are more than 41% of our prison population. Begging the question I so often hear on the right, do black people commit more crimes than white people? No, they are arrested more than white people. They are prosecuted more than white people. According to the NAACP, a black person is five times more likely than a white person to be stopped by a police officer for no just cause. The more times you get stopped, the more likely you are to get arrested. The police target black people in America because that is what police are for in America. Modern day policing has its roots in the slave patrols of the 1700s. Whether you like it or not, the truth is police in America started as armed officials searching for runaway slaves and tamping down any threat of a slave rebellion. Then, after the passage of the 13th Amendment, which freed the slaves but allowed for free prison labor, Police in the South became the enforcer of black codes, which rounded up black men on false charges of vagrancy to lock these black men up and use them once again as a source of free labor. Because of the loophole in the 13th Amendment, black men today are being arrested because while this country outlawed slavery, it decided to turn our prisons into a source of free labor labor. According to a new report last week by the ACLU, two out of three prisoners in America work either for private industry or the government. If they choose not to work, they are punished and end up having their sentences extended. Some of the work is for free. Some of it is paid pennies per day. According to the ACLU, These prisoners manufacture products like office furniture, mattresses, license plates, dentures, glasses, traffic signs, athletic equipment, and uniforms. They cultivate and harvest crops, work as welders and carpenters, and work in meat and poultry processing plants. But they are not protected by a a labor union. They have no rights. And that is the purpose of our police. Whether you like it or not, the purpose of our police is to find free labor and lock it up. The idea of professional police working for the city is an early 20th century idea. Starting in the early 1900s, police were there to be an arm of the state to enforce public order. The police myth, whether you like it or not, the police myth is that the police are there to prevent and solve crime. Whether you like it or not, historical analysis reveals that it is a myth. Whether you like it or not, police do not prevent or solve crimes. They occasionally solve a crime, but their track record at solving crimes, especially rape and murder, has dropped 
precipitously. The truth is, as you're about to find out, that our police, whether you like it or not, were never any good at preventing or solving crime because the purpose of the police in America is to restore order as defined by the state. The purpose of the police is to be an arm of the state. Back in the 1700s, the police were there to prevent slave uprisings, to round up runaway slaves. Today, the purpose of the police is to prevent the people from turning into an angry mob. The myth is that the police are there to solve and prevent crime. Whether you like it or not, the statistics, the truth reveals the police have never been good at preventing or solving crime. The truth is, whether you like it or not, they are getting worse at preventing and solving crime. It's time for Americans to grow up. There is a myth about our police. According to Professor Shima Baradaran Bowman, who teaches at S.J. Quinney College of Law, police, and she's being generous here, she says police only solve 2% of major crimes. And then she adds, she's being generous. And the police admit they don't solve major crimes. They admit that in order to increase funding for the police, just pay us more and then we can finally solve crimes. The police, their record in not solving crime is far worse than they are willing to admit. According to Professor Bowman's recent article in The Conversation, it is an absolute rarity. It is an absolute rarity for a crime to, re- to be reported to the police that results in a criminal conviction. She writes that 11% of all serious crimes result in an arrest and only 2%, and she says she's being generous, only 2% of those result in a conviction. Here's the other alarming fact. Because the American people have already internalized, but not necessarily admitted that the police don't solve crimes, half of all major crimes in America go unreported. Half of all major crimes go unreported because Americans have internalized how ineffectual our police are. To put it generously, half of all major crimes committed in this country go unreported. According to my math, that means of all the major crimes committed in America, the police solve 1%. 1% of all serious crimes in America are solved by our police. Whether you like it or not, America, 1% of all serious crimes in America are solved by our police. According to a Justice Department analysis, this is coming from our Justice Department, they analyzed violent crime in 2016. They said 80% of rapes and sexual assaults in America go unreported. According to the Justice Department, 80% of all rapes and sexual assaults go unreported. According to Rain, Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, it's America's largest anti-sexual violence organization, 
Only 310 out of every 1,000 sexual assaults are reported to police. That means that two out of three rapes and sexual assaults go unreported. According to Andrew Van Dam, writing for the Washington Post on October 6, 2018, this was back in the middle of the rapist Judge Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court hearings, they were talking about rape and people not reporting rape. According to Andrew Van Dam, writing for the Washington Post, quote, about 0.7% of rapes and attempted rapes end with a felony conviction for the perpetrator. Let me repeat that. Whether you like it or not, America, let me repeat this. 0.7% of rapes and attempted rapes end with a felony conviction. There are more than 100,000 rape kits that remain untested here in America. We're not sure of the exact number because there are 18,000 individual police agencies here in America and nobody really keeps track of them. But let's say, conservatively speaking, there are 100,000 untested rape kits. What does that mean? It means a woman is raped, then she goes to the police, and she's sexually violated again. It means a woman is raped, she goes to the police, she submits to a physical exam. She strips, she spreads her legs, and a detective, hopefully a woman, swabs her sore vagina for DNA. And then she's told after that second indignity, the, the, the vagina being swabbed, after that second indignity, she is told that the DNA will be sent to a lab to confirm that she has been raped and the DNA will then be entered into a national database to see if it matches any other DNA found in any other rape victims. The rape victim who submits to the rape kit is sent home. And she tries to forget what happened to her while the police who swapped her vagina have no intention of ever processing that rape kit. An untested rape kit is a sexual assault. An untested rape kit is a sexual assault. Why are you swabbing a woman's vagina if you have no interest in getting it tested? That is sexual assault, and the detective who does the swabbing and then leaves it in the evidence room should be arrested for sexual assault. There are close to one million police officers in America, more than at any time in American history. It is customary currently for anyone who is critical of the police to say, quote, many, if not most of our police officers are good people. It is customary for anyone who is critical of the police to add, it's just a few rotten apples. I'm not gonna say that. Because it is the job of police, we are told, to prevent and report crime. Do they do that? Do they do that? Do they report crime?
crime. Uh, do they report or prevent crimes committed by their fellow police officer? Crimes committed by our police are the worst crimes. How can we expect the law to be applied fairly when the people applying the laws are criminals? Do the police arrest or report the police officers who commit crimes? In Texas, Ohio, for example, it is illegal not to report a crime that causes serious bodily injury or death. You have to report a crime when you see it. It is a crime for a police officer to arrest somebody and not read them their Miranda rights. It is a crime for a police officer to punch a suspect who's already in custody. It is a crime not to report that if you are a police officer. You will be charged as an accessory, or you should be charged as an accessory after the fact if you witness a felony, if you're a cop who witnesses a felony being committed and then you assist in keeping that felony secret from the police. Given what you now know about our police here in America, how many police officers are accessories after the fact? Is it a few rotten apples? While most cops don't beat random suspects, how many cops have stood around watching someone like Derek Chauvin kneeling on a black man's neck and did nothing to stop him and then afterwards didn't report it? How many police officers are accessories after the fact? What percentage of police officers just to get along keep their mouths shut when they witness one of their fellow officers committing a felony. How many police officers in America have committed felonies simply by not reporting that felony to their supervisors? Of the one million cops in America, what percentage of those cops committed the felony of witnessing a crime being committed by another cop and failed to stop and or report it? A few bad apples. This is now the part of the conversation where you accuse me of hating the cops. I do not hate the cops. I want to know why the cops hate us. This is the part of the conversation where I'm accused of being weak on crime. I am not weak on crime. I want to know why the cops are. Fewer than 1% of rapes result in a conviction? Why are the police weak on crime? What are they doing that they cannot arrest rapists? I believe in police. I believe in locking people up. I believe there are evil people in this world. Most of them are in our corporate suites. And I believe the police should be arresting these people and putting them behind bars. I am anything but soft on crime. 
It's time for Americans to decide who the real criminals are. It's time to start asking why our police do such a piss poor job arresting these criminals. Well, the answer to that question is from the time of our nation's inception, the police have never been there to solve or prevent crimes. They don't do that. Whether you like it or not, the statistics bear that out. The police are there to protect property, property owners, and the state. The police, the local police, are not there to protect the people. The local police are there to protect the state from the people. The purpose of the police is to maintain order, which is just another word for the status quo. The purpose of the police is to make sure ordinary American citizens get in their heads, get it in their heads to do what they are told. The purpose of the police is to arrest Christian Smalls, which they did outside that Amazon fulfillment center near JFK while he was trying to unionize the workers. The police are not there to arrest any executives at Amazon who violate real laws regarding safety that cause injury and death. The police protect Amazon. The city streets here in New York are filled with Amazon delivery trucks illegally using sidewalks as way stations to sort through thousands of boxes that should have been sorted at the fulfillment center. But instead of ticketing the Amazon delivery trucks, the Amazon delivery people, the New York City police ticket ordinary citizens for double parking or even worse, for having a busted taillight, which means you have a fix it ticket and must show proof that you fix it. Otherwise, there's a bench warrant. The police work for Amazon. We have a cottage industry right now of pundits, journalists, academics, and politicians who can't wait to warn us that democracy is on life support and that we are about to become a police state. Hillary Clinton over the weekend said, America is on the verge of becoming a police state. And that's why Democrats have to win. And the way Democrats have to win is by no longer saying defund the police. You cannot make this up. Hillary Clinton said, if the Republicans win, we will live under a police state. We have to make sure the Democrats keep the House and the Senate and the way to keep the House and the Senate and to prevent a police state is to stop talking about defunding the police. Black people know that America already is a police state. Police states start with the police. A police state, the first word in police state is the police. All the tools for a full-blown police state have already been put into place. And by full-blown police state, I mean white men and women start getting locked up. A full-blown police state where Karens suddenly become too frightened to call the police. All the tools, all the instruments are already in place. All it takes now 
is an emergency, a terrorist attack, a financial collapse, maybe a riot, maybe so many people who are homeless, the government starts clearing out the camps to incite a reason to declare martial law. If you think I'm dreaming, listen to the testimony from last week of how Donald Trump was looking for any excuse to use his emergency powers to declare martial law. We are but one click away from the police being given full reign to do what they are there for, to keep us in line or in prison. It is not patriotic to give blind love to the police. It is patriotic to always hold the police under suspicion because the police are human, which means they are capable of anything. It is patriotic to hold the police under suspicion and try to take away as much power from them as we possibly can. We do need the police to prevent and solve crime, but they do not do that. The real purpose of the police is to arrest as many people as possible and get as many American citizens as possible into the system to get our fingerprints, to get our mugshots, to put us on record, to know who we are, because a populace that is in the system will be more obedient to the state. The purpose of the police is to arrest ordinary workers, to fingerprint them, to make them feel powerless and expendable. The purpose of the police is to make a compliant labor force. The purpose of the police is to harass the American people, to create outstanding bench warrants on a busted taillight so the American people can be fined. The purpose of the police is for cities to pay bills by arresting Americans, by charging them with misdemeanors and forcing them to pay exorbitant court fees and fines so that the rich don't have to pay taxes. The purpose of the police is to pay for themselves, to seize drug evidence so they can buy their own police cars. The purpose of the police is to create outstanding warrants so that when you're pulled over for a minor infraction, they can look up your record, find that outstanding bench warrant, and now have reason to arrest you. And if you're poor, hold you indefinitely to await your trial. Whether you like it or not, America, the purpose of the police is to fill our nation's prisons and jails, because the fuller our prisons and jails, the more money that is spent keeping people behind bars, and the more people behind bars, the more sources there are for cheap or free labor. The purpose of the police, the reason we have police, is to find the sadists and give them purpose, to absorb them into the system so they don't become a threat to it. The police are job recruiters. They are patrolling our streets, looking for men, men of color who they think will fit nicely into our for-profit prison system. It is not patriotic to give blind obedience to our police. You have the right to say whatever you want to say, so long as what you say doesn't result in a crime.
You have the right to protest, to peacefully assemble outside your government or outside the homes of the people who control or work for our government. You have the right to a lawyer. You have the right to demand a warrant before the police enter your home. You have the right not to submit to a drunk driving test. You have the right not to answer any questions from the time of your arrest all the way through your trial. You have the right to a quick and speedy trial and not to be held without due process. You have the right not to be charged excessive bail and you have the right to be spared cruel and unusual punishment. Joe Strummer saying, know your rights. Know your rights and then demand your rights. And most importantly, exercise those rights because if those rights are never exercised, they will become as out of shape as the cop arresting you. I am an American. I don't have to back the blue. Instead, I chose to back what the police have sworn an oath to protect, the Constitution of the United States of America. When I am handcuffed and arrested, I shouldn't have to ask politely how many more hours it will be before someone reads me my Miranda rights. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. We'll be back after this. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. We wake every morning like the Rolling Stones Cause we just can't get no satisfaction Democracy's in change, we could bury its remains But infotainment culture has infected our brains We're living every day, we're living every night In the USA of distraction the wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive, is burned into our brains by cable TV. Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news. Fear and white anxiety shape our views. The fourth estate has crumbled into an irrelevant heap. Critical thinking is all but asleep. Cause we're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The pathological pursuit of power and profit drives everything in sight. Not sure we can stop it. Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top. We've lost the power to think, so we shop until we drop. We're surveilled and monitored. 
monitored while they keep us all distracted so we never notice that our data has been extracted we're living every day we're living every night in the usa of distraction all right The Reagan agenda, a libertarian notion of sweeping deregulation, has been put into motion. Our eyeballs seldom stray too far away from the mega monopolies that command the day. Diversity in media is gone, gone, gone. Slowly fading out like a sad, sad song. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The telegenic spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed out any room for social integrity. With profits to be made and minds to be molded, the media crushes the truth even when it's been scolded. It's books now more than ever that people need to read. Folks are hypnotized by their Twitter feed. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. Molded, media crushes the truth. Now we can't seem to get out of this neoliberal nightmare that cares more for Wall Street than anybody's health care. We've been bruised, battered, defunded, and dismantled. We've been diminished, infiltrated, manipulated, and manhandled. The sovereignty of citizenship, the bulwark of democracy, is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day. Yeah. We're living every night. A distraction We're living every day Living every night In the USA A distraction We're living every day We're living every night in the USA of distraction. That's right. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, DavidFeldmanShow.com. We are on every platform. 
where you listen to podcasts. We release our podcast every Tuesday and is it Thursday? Every No, every Tuesday and Friday at 3 a.m. Every Tuesday and Friday at 3 a.m. The audio version of the podcast is released and we live stream the recording of our podcast on Zoom as well as YouTube. If you would like to sit in our virtual studio audience, ask questions, please go to my website and hit uh, attend a live taping. Today, since we're live, go to pay-per-view. If you're watching us on YouTube, go to pay-per-view, and that will give you a free link into our Zoom room so you can join the conversation, join our community, or watch us on YouTube. Subscribe to this show as uh, live on YouTube. We, we're live on YouTube and we're cutting up each episode into individual morsels to make it easier for you to share with your friends. Well, Jason Miles and Pascal Robert are co-hosts of This Is Revolution, and they are on the show uh, all the time, thank God. If you're in our Zoom audience, submit your questions in the Q&A, and I promise I will take, I will Take the time to read your questions during the last 10 minutes of my conversation. And I see Pascal and I see Jason. Are we going to do uh, the three of us together or individually? How would you like to do it? Whatever is convenient for you, David. Uh, well, we have an hour. So, you know what? We're told uh, to just break it up a little bit. So, you can go ahead and... Uh since Pascal's already here, Why he's ready. Look at his face. It's readiness in his face. Okay. All right. Bring it up. That works for me. Well, By the way, I want to say, wish you a happy Father's Day, uh, David. Happy Juneteenth as well. Happy Juneteenth Father's Day to you, David. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, let's talk about Juneteenth. Is this a uh, a holiday? that is new to white people. I got a news for you, David, that might surprise you. This holiday is new to some black people. I'll be very honest with you because I found out about Juneteenth not growing up in New York City and there were plenty of African-Americans. It was not just Caribbean folk in New York City, as you know, when I was coming up, there were black folk who were from North Carolina, who were from South Carolina, who were from the South. And because they, I was not in a space that was proximate to many black folk from Texas, I did not grow up in New York City, even though I lived in a kind of working class, middle class black neighborhood. I heard nothing about Juneteenth at all. I became aware of Juneteenth actually after college when I was in law school and I had a friend who was from Texas and she informed me about the historical precedence of Juneteenth as a holiday down there. So Juneteenth, I became aware of in my 20s and I was aware of that it was about a delayed awareness of emancipation that was caused to slaves in Texas because of the way in which the, both the military and the slave plantation owners tried to deny them the knowledge of emancipation. So what many of you may not know is that there are several there are people even within the black community who only became aware of Juneteenth 
with the rise of social media, with the rise of digital platforms, probably within the last five years or so. But I will not I will not diminish that there are longstanding traditions in black communities, particularly in Texas, Louisiana, some parts of California, or places that are proximate to Texas that have long traditions of celebrating Juneteenth. So uh, by no means of the imagination, I'm trying to suggest that this is some obscure thing that has no rooting in African-American history. That's not the case. What I'm saying is that it was much more of a regional holiday than something that was collectively a national consciousness reality in black spaces. It almost seems perfect that it took black people a long time to find out about Juneteenth because it took a lot of black people to find out that they were free. Uh, So give me the chronology here. Abraham Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation to free slaves in the South. Under the control control of the Confederacy. But not in the North. There were still- No, no, that's the thing. People fail to realize that even after the Emancipation Proclamation, there were slave, there were slaves in border states like South Carolina, like Delaware, like Maryland that were still enslaved after the Emancipation Proclamation because those slave those states were still within the control of the Union. The Emancipation Proclamation only really takes force in the Confederacy. And because it takes force in the Confederacy, because the Civil War is still going on, it obviously takes time for the Emancipation Proclamation to actually become fully weaponized in a capacity to give freedom to slaves because the war continues for another two years. Right. And so Texas was part of the Confederacy. The Emancipation Proclamation 1863, 18 something. I don't believe that's correct. I think I'm, I'm proud. I, I may be wrong about that, but it took two years for the slaves in Texas. Well, don't forget, it takes two years for the war to finally end in the first place. Anyway, the war is fought for right. like two years before it even can. All of this stuff can be legitimized. But what's really fascinating is that friend, a friend of our show, Torrey Reed, who is a historian recently published an article in Common Dreams about Juneteenth literally today. And when he, the title of the, art of the article is that when celebrating Juneteenth, please remember the 13th Amendment. Now, I know there's a lot of controversy people have with the 13th Amendment, with the, uh, with the convict leasing clause, and he gets into that history in the article. But what he's saying is that even after Juneteenth, there were still places in the United States and even some in Texas where black people were still enslaved, particularly some border states that did not want to recognize emancipation, particularly South Carolina. And the ultimate act that does the job of full emancipation is the 13th Amendment. That's when you actually have final emancipation in terms of the actual national mandate to actually abolish plantation slavery in the United States. We don't have to get into the whole question about the convict leasing aspect as well, but the plantation slavery becomes a boss 
because of the 13th Amendment. Now, his position is not to say that Juneteenth is invaluable, particularly because it has a history when it comes to people in the state of Texas, but that it's a much more complicated history than simply saying that on June 19th, 1865, all black people were free, because that's actually technically not the case. Right, right. And so slavery took on a new iteration. Prisons. This is this. This is something that's a controversial fact, and I'll tell you why. Because if you understand that convict leasing, if convict leasing was, quote, unquote, the new slavery, there's a little fact that makes it difficult for that reality. The majority of the convict leased people were white. They were not black. Right. Well, I said at the time, uh, in my opening comments, I said the 13th Amendment expanded slavery to new races. Well, what thing is, though, convict leasing is something that had existed in the United States for a long period of time. And the language of the 13th Amendment in the convict leasing element is something that was kind of performa in states in terms of the adoption of new constitutions. Almost every state had that language in that constitution. And what Torre is arguing is that to believe that the intent of the 13th Amendment was to re-enslave black people would to challenge the whole purpose, would be to challenge the whole purpose of the Civil War, which was rooted in emancipation. So the point I'm trying to get, and I, I'm not a historian, so I'm not qualified to get into this debate. What I'm saying is that there is this new uh, reinterpretation of the 13th Amendment that basically says that it gives birth to convict leasing and slavery by another name. And what I'm saying is that there are scholars and historians who are challenging that historiography to say that that is a literalist misinterpretation of the historical facts and the order of when it happened. And that the actual boom of mass incarceration, particularly of black men, starts around the proximate time of the civil rights movement in the 1965 era that is a consequence of deindustrialization. Not that there was not convict leasing. There was convict leasing all the way up until the 1940s in the United States. But the massive explosion of black males in terms of the contemporary understanding of mass incarceration starts in the 1960s. So my position is not to deny the historical role of convict leasing. What I'm saying is that the hyper-racialization of mass incarceration becomes much more class-specific as urban deindustrialization starts to deny the capacity of black, particularly black males, to find jobs in those in those cities as a consequence of the second and third wave of the Great Migration from the South that starts after World War II into northern cities, and that lack of economic opportunity starts to precipitate with a certain kind of urban crime wave and during the periods of the urban rebellions that starts a massive incarceration. There's a great article in Catalyst that talks about this. It's called The Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration and has a very, very good explanation of this timeline as well. Or it goes back to the old vagrancy laws. If you're an African-American male who no longer has a job, you're going to hang out and 
they're just hang out with your friends. Well, there's no question there's going to be a racialized component in the way in which police target. Listen, there's no doubt that there's a racialized component in the way in which black people are targeted in the United States because black people, unfortunately, as we know, are disproportionately relegated to poverty and surplus labor redundancy. That doesn't mean that there aren't large numbers of white poor ethics and others that are poor as well, but there's a disproportionality in the way this affects these communities. And there's a historical reason for that. And largely it's due to the way in which capitalism has rendered black people into a quotient that is required by its utility, which is reserve army. What does that mean? Capitalism requires people who can't find jobs. Because if you have full employment, these bloodsuckers are going to tell you you're going to have inflation. Right. Okay. And has, that, has that ever happened? Have... Has that ever happened in, in our recent past where they've. That's what's going on right now. Yeah. Well, they're trying to use inflation to stop full employment now. They're trying right. to use the threat of inflation and the Federal Reserve because people actually, the terms of which jobs are being found today, they think are too good for labor. We had a good show on recently. We talked about how. Literally, one of the reasons why inflation is being bandied about so badly is because the Fed wants to use fear of inflation as a means to discipline labor, meaning that in the wake of COVID, because of the, the, you know, the COVID protests and how people didn't want to go to work, labor has certain advantages in its capacity to find work and it's a competitive job market. And because of that reality, the Federal Reserve, because they don't want to pay, because capitalism always wants to avoid paying high labor costs, is now trying to undercut that by talking about we've got to increase interest rates, which will always cause a diminution of the capacity of labor to bargain for better wages or better income. And Jerome Powell, who is the chairman of the Federal Reserve, has openly said that his goal is to bring wages down, which yes. is which yes. is not the mandate of the Federal Reserve. The, no. mandate, the What is the mandate of the Federal Reserve? The Federal Reserve, which is a private public, private, private public partnership, is to maintain monetary stability within the United States through its ability to control interest rates. That's their main purview as an institution. But cutting wages is not exactly something I would say is the mandate of the Federal Reserve. It's supposed to provide uh, for as much full employment as possible without destroying the dollar. It's not supposed to manufacture recessions, which is what Jerome Powell is trying to do. He's, as you've just said, he's trying to create an economic situation where discipline labor, where work becomes precious. Yes. And will he will he succeed? Probably, yes, he probably will succeed because there's never really been a president that's been effectively been able to leverage any kind of, you know, stick against the Federal Reserve in its decision making power. How much of this inflation is real or how much of it is an opportunity for corporations to increase profits? I've noticed that when the price of gasoline goes up, so do the profits for ExxonMobil. That's correct. I think that there is a correlation of factors. 
I think that the COVID wave definitely caused supply chain problems that made it difficult to transmit goods and services that caused the price price gouging that allowed a price gouging that also caused prices to go up. I think that with the with the phenomenon that we have in Ukraine, where we have large amounts of wheat that are unable to be uh, put into the market because of countries like Ukraine are massive wheat producers, it's going to have an effect on foodstuffs and it's going to cause prices to be augmented as well. I think that because Russia is a major oil producer and having its its ability to transmit oil across the globe being blockaded because of US uh, embargo policies is going to affect the capacity of oil to be in a relatively stable price and that's going to affect things as well. So my position is that there is some price gouging and there is some corporate shenanigans but there are some legitimate factors on the ground that are contributing as to why to why the actual costs of things are as bad as they are. We're talking with Pascal Robert. He is one of the co-hosts of the This Is Revolution podcast, which everybody should subscribe to. It's fantastic. And let's bring in Jason Miles. And I don't know if you can start your video or not. There you are. Hello, Jason. Jason is in Mexico. And welcome. I'm going to check out right now, Nick, because I've got some uh, obligations i got to take care of. I'll let you hang out with Jason. Could you stay with us for eight more minutes? For eight? If you want me for eight, I'll stay for you for eight. Eight minutes. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to get your comments on January 6th and how scared so many of us are that we're in the final stages you know, end stage democracy, and we're this close to losing it. I remember Cornell West after uh, 9-11 said, uh, ooh, America felt terrorized. Well, now you know. So now, now you know how we feel. You, you became N-words, but he said the actual word. <laughs> Oh, America is terrorized. Imagine falling asleep at night uh, and then waking up to, and then he would describe basically what happened to Malcolm X and his family in the middle of the night. And anyway, um, from a from the uh, from the perspective of your podcast and and your experience. What do you think when you hear Democrats warning us about the end of our democracy? Since we only have eight minutes left, let me ask Pascal. I'll Pascal, give you that answer. Yeah. I don't really have much to say. Oh, I think that I'll be very honest with you, uh, David. I find the hypocrisy of Democrats claiming that we are at the brink of losing our democracy without interrogating what role they had in bringing us to this position. After 50 years of bipartisan economic part of politics and policy that has cannibalized working class people cross racially, cross ethnically, and has literally given people to the position, brought people to the position where they are totally atomized and feel unable to get any kind of response from their government. If they all believe, if the Democrats are concerned that we're in a position 
to that we're going to lose our democracy. My question would be, what have the Democrats been doing for 50 years to demonstrate that Americans should be invested in believing in their democracy besides platitudes? And before you go, Julian Assange, it looks like Julian Assange will be losing the battle and will be extradited here to the United States. One of the reasons uh, the judge didn't want to bring him to America was because of the current state of our prisons. The judge, the British judge said, if, if, Julie, if Julian Assange, we'd like to give you Julian Assange, but we don't trust you with him. We think uh, he'll die in your prisons, either through suicide, nervous breakdown, or murdered. It's accepted. I think it's a, a legitimate concern. We we accept the state of our prisons. It, it it's almost as though That's where bad people go. I'm sorry. It's where bad people go. Yeah. No one cares where bad people go. Right. You if people care about prison because Julian Assange is going there, you don't care about prison. You care about Julian Assange. Right. You care about a person that you think is above prison going to prison, but you don't care about prison. Wow. The purpose of prison is to punish the poor people. Yeah. You don't care about the people that have to go there. Is it really? Why do you think there's such a rollback of like tough on crime laws and tough on crime people are being elected in big quote unquote blue cities? Nobody gives a damn about poor people. There's a book I mean, called Punishing the Poor. Angry. I'm not saying it because I believe it. You know what I mean? Jason has very visceral, visceral opinions about police and poor. There's a really good book that justifies his opinions. Is by I think it's a better book than uh, than Jim Crow, quite frankly. Yeah. It's by a man named Loic Wakant. It's called Punishing the Poor, and it really talks about how the purposes of mass incarceration and policing are to punish and otherwise poor people and make them redundant and punish them for the fact that capitalism has failed them. I mean, when you work in an environment that feels like the bottom of a dumpster because you're dealing with all the people that no one wants to deal with. <clears throat> and you see how these people are kind of shuffled along in a, in a way that is every day, every day, you're probably going to break down once a day because people that you're trying to help don't trust you because no matter what color you are, no matter how old you are, no matter what you say, how you say it, you are on the other side of a desk and you are the one that has the power of the pen that has taken away from someone. You have taken benefits away. You've taken a house away. Fuck a family member away. You have taken away. You are only subtraction. Right. Let me say goodbye. The people that work in these fields, they're not all hammer and sickle socialists, if they're even political at all, but they have hearts. And every day you see it just get stepped on because someone tells you to fuck off. That's every, that's a good day. That's a good day. You might get told to just fuck off. Right. Right. Or food thrown at you. Um, but you do it because you understand that people's humanity should be valued. Right. Regardless of what you've done in your life to get you to this point, there is no perfect person that we're talking about here. This isn't, 
Joe Blow worked a factory job, factory left. Now he's down on his dumps and he lost everything. That's some people. That's some. There are some people that actually get up and live in their cars, sometimes with their families. They go to work. That's some people. A lot of people get drug problems, spousal abuse, sex offenders. Hold the thought for one second. Let me Hold the Mm -hmm. thought. I'm hanging on your every word. Let me say goodbye to Pascal Robert, host. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Everybody listen to the This is Revolution podcast. We're talking now with Jason Miles, who you (laughs) are. You got Jason all fired up. No, go. I'm all all lawyers. Uh, Yeah. You're in Mexico. Once, once you, real quick, once you've done something, you're mentally ill, you're addicted, whatever the label is on you, I don't have to listen to you. And now I just need to find somewhere to put you because visually you're a problem. Shaysa Boudin ain't in office, not because he failed the city, but the city got tired of seeing what real left, a real left vision of the district attorney's office looks like. And that is, I don't want to put young people or people in general in a cage for property crime. It's so easy for people to be like, yeah, that makes so much sense. But guess what? You ever had your car broke into? This shit sucks. You ever had somebody try to bust in your house? It sucks. Get your backpack stolen with your laptop in it. Who likes that? Who feels like shrugging their shoulders and being like, well, he needed it more than I did, especially now. Right. And Chasa, sad, sad to say it. I like the dude. met him on a couple occasions. Like the dude, but people really weren't ready for him to shrug his shoulders and be like, eh, it's not that big of a deal for y'all. You people in San Francisco really can't afford that company paid laptop that you got. You're just going to walk back in there and get another one. Right. Uh, But it's also the blight. It's seeing it. Dave, you lived in the city for a minute. You know, San Francisco. It's worse than when you was out there. And it wasn't like it was that great back then. Well, I was just there last week. But, you know, I don't want to see Julian Assange go to jail for being a journalist. That's silly shit, right? Um, But much like the abortion issue, no one cared that for decades, if you're a poor woman, the state can say you're getting an abortion. You're getting a C-section. You're getting sterilized. You're giving this child up. Nobody talked about that. And the people that did talk about it, you're on the margins. I challenge someone to hang out with immigration lawyers or, or public defenders because the clients aren't pretty. At all. Go back to that point about mass sterilization, forcing certain people to be mm-hmm. sterilized in the, in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you say at one point we were forcing women to have abortions. We do. And we do? 
We still do. If you are, if you are in services in the system, yeah, you can be forced to have plethora of things. You can be forced to be sterilized. You can be forced to uh, have a cesarean. Oh yeah. And so the same people who want to sterilize and forcibly abort the fetuses inside poor poor people at the same time want to outlaw abortion. Some, not all. But it's all part of the same war against the poor. The war against the poor is very different than the more religious right move to flex on on pop politic issues, right? So what you're seeing in like state houses and places like Texas is this far right move to take over lower levels of government. Like we're not going to try to take over the federal system, but we'll definitely go through school boards to state houses. And then we'll try to push our agenda, but it's having a kind of a nasty backlash on them because no one noticed what they were doing until they start messing with these kind of uh, sacrosanct in people's minds, uh, sacrosanct uh, decisions. Uh, Again, when you're in services, no one knows what happens to foster children or, you know, incarcerated women. You know what I mean? Like, and no one really cares. You only care if a famous person or a person of note might go to jail and you hear something like the prison system in America is so bad. Right. Which is, which is a very, a very sweeping statement because (laughs) And working in services, the main people you work with are people that have come out of the prison system from doing very, very heinous crimes, usually murder. Right. But they're all college educated because they got their degrees inside. So especially a place like California, there are some opportunities. Um, uh, A buddy of mine is a prison guard in San Quentin. And when he has to deal with people that are going in for longer bits of time, he tells them, you can either come out of here with a degree or you can come out of here a better felon. It's kind of up to you what you want to do. Right. Um, after time, some people want to come out with a degree. Um, there is work for you in the nonprofit world. Um, I'm not saying that it's great. I'm not saying that prison in California is the model. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. No. It's, it's just different wherever you go, right? Some places are definitely way more quick to throw you in in a cell and other places, but we're not even talking about uh, uh, civil detention, which is what happens to our, our Brown brothers and sisters that come. Um, what does civil detention? What does civil detention mean? Civil detention means I can hold your ass for as long as I want because it's civil, civil. Well, what does that mean? It's not, it's not so, you know, uh, immigrants, you know, when you were talking about the 13th Amendment and convict leasing and I was in the I was in the chat uh, making some comments. because Someone said something about the documentary 13th was was a great movie. And, you know, one of the flaws of Ava DuVernay was that the new Jim Crow and 13th kind of says that private prisons are this big problem where when if you looked at the numbers, it was uh, state institutions that were locking people up for violent crime. It wasn't just nonviolent drug offenses. Like these, these two things kind of paint this picture that there's these people that just sell a little dope and no one really gets hurt. And then they're going to jail for long periods of time. And that's 
true to an extent, but when you start looking who's going inside prison, it's people that are doing violent crimes. Or accused um, of violent crimes. Accused. But let's just say they did it, right? Well, how many Again, of them no have had trials? Perfect. Let's many- just say you did it. Because I want to live in a world where we can say, okay, well, that person did that. They've paid their their for their crime. Let's move on. Let's stop trying to make a world filled filled with punishment. Right. And and that's and that's kind of how people start to look at the Assange thing. Right? Like, oh, okay, well, you don't want to see a very carceral state. Oh, great. Start there to Assange and then keep looking, you know. Open that book up even further and see, and, and you'll be surprised what you see when it comes to um, the amount of time people get, right? Um, I'm not, I like talking to the abolished people because it forces me to look at the situation differently. And when I say the abolished people, I mean like the prison abolitionists that have been around since the 80s and 90s. We're talking like the Angela Davises and and the Ruthie Gilmores and the Dylan Rodriguez's, like these guys that have been around for a long time saying this stuff when it was where they were a a a very small minority and before it was a trendy hashtag. Uh, we may not agree on everything, but it definitely opens up um your understanding and then also to again working with the unhoused you're always working with people that have been just shuffled through the system sometimes since childhood i'm talking some foster care then you get incarcerated and then you get thrown out as an adult it's like ooh. all you know is government institutions you're 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 at home there it's all but that's the punitive society in which we live in. And, and I don't know if that's a society that I feel very comfortable living in. See, I was born before Reagan, way before Reagan. And it was received wisdom that violent crime can be prevented by rooting it at its source. In other words, uh, making sure people have medical care, mental health treatment, or jobs to prevent people breaking into homes, that, that crime, sometimes there are professional criminals, people who just like committing crimes, but for the most part, people, <coughs> people want a job. They want a normal life. You turn to crime when you've exhausted all the options. That's what... Uh, people raised before Reagan were taught. But now we've had 40 years of lock them up, lock them up and throw away the key. The idea deserving. that and they deserve deserving. to be locked up. Who's, who's deserving? In the latest video essay I did, uh, same as it ever was, I put a clip of Ronald Reagan when he wasn't running for office. That clip is from 1975 when Reagan was on Carson. And I don't know if you were in California in the early 70s. I, I've seen that clip. What, what about it? But you, have, you weren't in California in the, in the 70s, right? We all did a lot of crazy things in the 70s. But... 
I, I don't remember if I was in Cal. I may have visited California in the 70s, but I wasn't there. Well, Reagan's whole thing was to start rolling back a lot of welfare reforms. And he started doing that when he was running for office uh, for governor in the late 60s. And he became governor in the early 70s. And in that, in that, in that clip that I cut, I wanted to show him kind of bragging about the fact that he was kicking people off welfare rolls because you really see his uh, welfare uh, vision uh, come to life with Bill Clinton. Um, So when we talk about kind of this bipartisan consensus that's very punitive when it comes to poverty, um, it is antithetical to what you're talking about with the Great Society programs uh, that come out of the Johnson administration. Right. Well, Ricky in London asks, uh, what does Pascal or Jason think about the Poor People's March in the Capitol last Saturday? Uh, I didn't see, I haven't really been following uh, the Reverend. I know he got a bunch of funding. I forget where it came from. It might even came from like Soros or somewhere like that. From where? Um, not he's a bad guy. I think he got some Soros money. Um, Is that wrong? I don't think. Again, I don't think he's a bad guy. I don't know if the message has changed. Right, that's what you're always looking for. I, I was talking with Gerald Horn a few years ago about this, and. That was the first thing he said. He goes, look, when you're trying to do something, it costs money. <laughs> right. Does your messaging change when and when the money comes in your hand? And that's uh, kind of the key point. So I don't know. I mean, were they marching for legislation or were they marching to march? I don't yeah. know. So I was a little, question with I was in a narcissistic state of disrepair over the weekend and I knew uh, in fact, somebody wrote to me and said, why don't you get your head out of your ass and read about the poor people's march on the Capitol? That's how my listeners talk to me. <laughs> they read, somebody read my newsletter and said, why don't you talk about something important like the poor people's march? Rodrigo in Mexico, we have an international audience or internacional to please Rodrigo. I'm He's, uh, we would never would have met you had it not been for Rodrigo, by the way. Rodrigo wants to know, uh, one of the statistics I cited two weeks ago on this show is that there's 820,000 people on parole and 2.9 million on probation. Can you talk about that? I've read, I mean, this is was a famous statistic for a while, and then we forget about it, but something like one-third of every African ama- African-American male is in the system, fingerprinted, and mugshot has been processed by our judicial criminal justice system. That means two thirds are not. I'm sorry. That means two thirds are not. Did I say one third or two thirds? No, I said. I said. Does that mean two thirds are not? Um, two thirds have had it expunged. Sure, maybe. I don't. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that statistic. Yeah. I don't really look at statistics from uh, a purely racialized base like that because it's kind of flawed. It makes you start to think that every black guy is, uh, 
has been in the system in some capacity and that's some sort of rite of passage of blackness. So I'm not the biggest fan of, of overly racialized statistics because um, I'm sure if you start to look at them, most of those people, like, is that count if you've had a DUI or a, a ton of traffic tickets? Like, I don't know. Well, what but, is that system? but it isn't, it isn't a, an African-American more likely to be locked up because he's got one or two misdemeanors on his record, but one and one equals. <laughs> the bigger question is why does he have one or two misdemeanors on his record? Right. To, to get him. We're, already, two, we're two. already painting a picture of a person with two, two strikes walking in the door. I mean, if you're talking about poor people, yeah, there's poor people that look like me that are in prison. Yes. There's poor people that look like you that are in prison. There's poor people. There's a lot of poor people that look like Rodrigo that are in, in the regular prison and also civil detention and prisons. No one knows about that are private, that are built around the borders here, uh, Arizona, and they get thrown in there for months and their family has no idea where they are. If you're a poor person who looks like me, you're really poor. <laughs> you are. Ab- I met some. I met some homeless Jews at the shelter. <laughs> H- homeless Jews is somebody who rents. <laughs> there I go. I'm going to get a call from my mother now. Now I'm in trouble with my mother. Now, by the way, Rod- Rodrigo. I pointed this out to Rodrigo. He lives in Mexico. He's so busy mm-hmm. complaining about American prisons. Did you know that practically 100 percent of the prisons in Mexico are filled with Mexicans. Did you know that? <laughs> I, I believe it. They think um, we're bad. I don't want to see any of them as I knock on particle board. I don't want to see any of those prisons. I don't want to know where they are. I love Mexico. It's a great place. There's no crime here and we're moving on. When I go to Minnesota, mm-hmm. my shoulders drop. When I go to Canada, my shoulders drop before I even realize I'm safe. My body tells me I'm safe. Okay. Interesting. Do, do your shoulders drop when you get back to Mexico? I love it here. I mean, all jokes aside, I really do love it here. It, um, it's a little rough driving through Tijuana cause you have to go through TJ to get to the quota, which is the freeway. Excuse me. Um, By the way, somebody, Sarah from Minnesota just pointed out about the murder rate in, in Minneapolis. You're absolutely yeah, right. I, that's but, why I was like, it was interesting that you feel but that I'm white. Minneapolis, <laughs> but, but I, I'm I worked white. with some people in North Dakota from the Twin Cities that were uh, very white and extremely violent. Um, I'm just saying as a, as a white middle-aged man uh, in a b- bubble of white privilege for some reason i subscribe i still believe in the myth of minnesota nice i i uh, don't get effed up (laughs) i know now i'm thinking about get a white dude and a humong dude beating the shit out of you taking your wallet i know no i know Get a um, rainbow coalition of an ass whooping that's not what you want yeah let, let me just say when i go to canada my shoulders drop uh, Again, you know, parts right. You go to you go to Vancouver. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. 
But downtown Vancouver, where crime is really, really centralized in one little area where they've kind of done a, I don't know if you want to say good job (laughs) of putting all the poor people in one place where everybody likes to shoot up. Uh, A lot of them are native. Uh, They're definitely uh, poor on the street. Sadly, it was where a lot of the music venues were that would play back in the day in Vancouver. Right. so that was always a wake up call for me going to going to Canada. Like my my ex who I did music with for years, she's from Vancouver. So her parents' house was nice. She lived in East Van, which is a predominantly was a predominantly Asian area. Um beautiful mountains and everything, right? And then you we go downtown to, to play the show and it's like gotta get somebody to watch the the van <laughs> so right. nobody steals all your stuff or the van itself. Let me so let me go I, back. I, I, I guess Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. So you're in Mexico. You were in San Francisco. You you say that I know what, David, you've lived in San Francisco. You know what it's like, but you wouldn't recognize it. Something's happening in this country. Mm-hmm. Right? It's called a collapse. It's called a collapse. So it's not necessarily going back to quoting Cornell West after 9-11, where he was saying, you're terrorized, welcome to our world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something is happening that's unfamiliar to a cross-section of this country, correct? Including the disenfranchised, including... I think I think we're seeing the failure of neoliberalism in real time, neoliberal capitalism in real time. And we're seeing, as Pascal always says, people really fighting for this a slice of a, of a very shrinking pie. Or, or a better uh, a metaphor he uses is people fighting for... Uh, Seats on the Titanic. <laughs> right. Um, or the life raft. Oh, fighting for seats on the Titanic. That's interesting. Like, on the Titanic. You're not even fighting for the raft. You're fighting for your position uh, on the Titanic. And the thing about wow. collapse, if, you, if we think about it, we always see it from a science fiction point of view where there's going to be a great explosion or this thing. There's usually going to be a warning sign, a roadmap to this collapse. But there is no roadmap to collapse. There was no roadmap in Rome. No one knew. It wasn't like one day it was like this and the next day it was like that. All roadmaps lead to Rome, I thought. Ours is. Right. I live in a country where my water source comes from the same water source as my beloved California, Colorado River. So where maybe people are paying higher amounts of money for water. Maybe some people are getting fined for watering a lawn, right? My water, David, shuts off. There's over a million people that live in TJ, Tijuana, and I don't know how many millions live in Rosarito, where I'm at. Our water shuts off. In the last two weeks, I've been without water for four days. Nothing. Tap. Dry. 
So you can't live without water. So what do you do? I said, checked. You got to save it. You got to save it in ways that are very foreign to us when you live in the States, like taking a shower with a bucket in it. So you, you have, you save that water um, for other things. Um, you, you have to buy water uh, to drink because we can't, I can't drink water out of my tap, right? It's bad. It's going to hurt me. It can hurt me. But just that fact, I think is lost on people. Because when we think about border cities like San Diego, we think about these crazy Minutemen or these crazy patriots that can't wait to shoot or entrap a brown person or criminalize someone for giving someone water that's trying to cross a desert valley. Right. Right. And mind you, I have to, I have to look at the wall as I come. And it's like, is that person more of a problem than the fact that your water is going to run out in your lifetime? Arizona, you got more dudes in Arizona that are locked and loaded and can't wait to put a bullet in a brown person's behind. And it's like, you, you're, gonna, you're not going to have any water. That's what you care about. This is what the end looks like to me, man. Right. We care about so much more silly stuff than each other. It's frightening. And with a lot of these political defeats that you see, and this is just my own opinion, it feels like because we have this young burgeoning left of filled with downwardly mobile people, um, there's a lot of hope and heroes. Bernie's going to save us. AOC is going to save us. One of these progressive voices is going to save us. We can save us. But there's hope. And then when these people lose or they don't come through the way people thought they were going to come through, because ultimately politics should never be hero worship. Um, you see people will get let down and upset. And then there becomes a return to like identity politics um, and, and uh, tough on crime laws. We're back to, to those politicians using things like intersectionality to even silence left voices. I mean, again, I, I'll keep going back to where I'm from because I think that's such a perfect example of where we are. When you have a district attorney that says, let's reimagine the top law enforcement position in a major metropolitan area and make this position now an extension of the public defender's office. And we're going to have programs to stop revitalism. We want to stop a revolving door, right? We don't want to make more criminals to make you feel safer. And we want to make more humans whole to make you feel safer. But that takes time. That takes a movement of people that are dedicated. That takes a city government that has the same vision. You can't do that alone. <clears throat> and when you, more quote unquote progressive voices got into that city council, what did the mayor say? The black female mayor, as a black female mayor, these white progressives don't understand what we go through. I grew up in the projects. I had a mother that had a drug problem. Silences those voices, right? 
Oh, don't listen to the progressives. So I'm not saying London Breed is the most evil woman in the world and she needs to be stopped um, because she was pushed to actually um, add some extra funding to some programs for the unhoused, for the unhoused hotels in San Francisco. But again, that took organizing. That took a movement of real people. We have to get back to embracing our humanity at a certain point and not be afraid to offend somebody. If I offend you, it's not on purpose and it's not forever. It shouldn't be forever. If I call you the wrong name, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I will apologize for that. Can we move on? Or do we have to stay with some sort of moral high ground that you can sit on? Silly shit, man. That's silly now, is shit. That, but is on. that real or is that Twitter? Both. I've experienced it in real life. How much real life as a podcaster are you and I actually experiencing? Or how much of it is... What do you think? I mean, I get out there. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. In the real world, if I went up to somebody, I was like, man, Jimmy Dore and this forced to vote. They'd be like, man, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Right. And we don't speak English. <laughs> and, you know, if you, if you like, yeah, I mean, you get in real life, if you get mm -hmm. a pronoun wrong, mm -hmm. you're not canceled. You're not, you know, if something slips out of your mouth that's inappropriate in real life, Nobody's saying, I can't talk to you. We're done. I, I just don't. Mm. I think on I've Twitter happen. that happens. Oh, I've had it happen. The last tour I was on. I was in that world in the last tour I was on. So, yeah, there were some people that got upset. Over one thing you said. Mm -hmm. And I sat there and I was like, okay, we're not leaving until there's an understanding. And for <laughs> the rest of the band, I was not very happy. In Richmond, Virginia, I'll never forget it. It was like a conversation for well over an hour of, I just, and I just sat there and listened. I didn't agree with everything, but I sat there and listened. I'm not above listening because ultimately these people have feelings and I wanted to understand why they couldn't say hello to me. It had to be, um, what's your pronoun? Right. I was like, whatever happened? Right. Hi. <laughs> right. I works fine. Right. And that sparked a whole other conversation. And there was more things that happened. I won't get into it. It's a whole other story. But um, we can learn from one another. We can actually build something when we're together in these actual moments of real life. In a few days, I'm going to be on a plane. I'm going to be in New York. And I, I hope will, we're going to be hanging out together. We will be hanging out. Yes, we will. Jason you know, Miles. We, we have to wrap this up. Jason Miles is the co-host with Pascal Robert, who was with us earlier, of the This Is Revolution podcast. And go to thisisrevolutionpodcast.com. Listen to This Is Revolution. And I look forward to we'll talking. talking tonight about, we'll be talking tonight about the gentrification of high school sports with Wozni Lambre and my very good friend that is a basketball coach at Oakland High about how even standard uh, urban 
poor people, high schools can't even play in tournaments anymore. Wow. Because, oh. uh, because of the, the way the sports is changing and it's sad. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. I'll see you physically in just a few days. Good. I look forward to it. Let us now go to California. Howie, are you there? I'm here. Oh, wow. Okay, it's working. We're doing it differently today. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, and they raise money for progressive candidates around America. Read him every day over at Down with Tyranny. It's been, I had last week off, so it's good to hear your voice. Yeah. Were you in jail? I I cannot comment on an an active criminal matter. Seriously. Okay. <laughs> I think you understand that uh, uh, I've been advised that I, I cannot say anything uh, regarding an ongoing criminal matter. So in, when the newspaper said it was David Feldman, it was you. I cannot comment on an ongoing. Yes, I, I was. Yes, I was arrested. Yes. Okay. Well, congratulations. I'm sure it's not the first time, right? I cannot comment on an ongoing criminal matter. Get about this matter. But you've, you've been arrested before, haven't you? I cannot comment on an ongoing criminal matter. But. I mean, I was arrested a lot of times in my life. Tell me about it. What happened? Uh, I'm trying to remember what, which, which was the first time. I was certainly, uh, there were a bunch of drug arrests. Uh, there was one for um, draft card burning. That was a big one. There was one. Then there was a horrible one in Afghanistan where I got arrested uh, and was thrown into like a, a, a hole in the ground that they called a jail. Really? Um, well, there were, I think there were others. I mean, there were like minor kinds of things, like hitchhiking, for example. Well, you, you talked about being thrown into a hole in the ground while traveling through Afghanistan. I want to say it was the Mujahideen who did that? No, 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 not at all. They were, uh, they, no, it was, um, I was, when I was there, um, it was, uh, uh, before the Russian invasion. Right. So it was a, di- a whole different set of characters. Um, so it was just, you know, I, I did wrong. I was trying to smuggle a lot of hash um, <clears throat> from Afghanistan into Russia. Thank goodness I got caught on the, on the Afghan st- side. Otherwise I wouldn't be here speaking to you now. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, my partner was the <clears throat> postmaster general who was related to the king so I got out in a day, and in two days, I had my van and my hashback. So you were working with the Postmaster General of Afghanistan to smuggle hash out of Afghanistan and back into the United States. Is that correct? Oh, not exactly. He was, he, first of all, he was the Postmaster General of Kabul, not of Afghanistan. Okay. And, and um, I was send, regularly sending hash back to the U.S., and he, he would help me to make sure it got through. And this so he was my partner in that. This, this was something different. I had planned to drive, I, I had a, a compartment built into my van 
uh, smuggle uh, 50 kilos of hash to uh, Scandinavia through Russia, figuring like no one does that. Well, there's a good reason why no one does that. Anyway, that's a long time ago. Are you aware that I'm sort of like writing random pages of, of uh, my memoir right now and posting them on Down With Tyranny? I've been begging you to do that for years. I've been doing it. I've been having, I, I, I did one uh, about my first kiss. I did one about, uh, I, I did two about my, my first big hitchhiking uh, trips. Yeah, I'm, I, I've done three or four already. And they're just literally just random pages. They don't really give much of an idea about what the book is going to be about. But it, they're, you know, they're little vignettes. Wasn't Roland going to interview you? Who? But weren't you going to be interviewed by Roland? Well, well, I'm kind of hoping that eventually Roland will help me write the book since he remembers stuff better than I do. Right. Um, but that's a long ways off. Now I'm just putting together these pages for the woman who's going to sort of put them all together and edit them into a book. But I mean, literally there's like three pages now out of a, you know, a potentially 500 page book. Right. Right. And very random. I mean, they're not, they're not indicative of anything. You know, they uh, you know, they just, you know, I don't even know if they'll even make it into the book. She was not happy with the last one, the, the, the most recent one I just did. You were thrown into a pit, and was it covered? <laughs> it was a jail. It was a, it was a, a mostly underground jail. Were you? It wasn't. It was. Were Were you claustrophobic at the time? Did you panic? Did you? Oh think no, it wasn't like that. It was. Uh, it, it wasn't. It wasn't like that. It was. It was a horrible situation. It was very very cold. It was. Uh, it was filthy. It was. You, you know, just you know, absolutely vile. I don't know what would have happened to me if I didn't have. Uh, a good connection to get me out of there. At the time that you were, at one point, were you terrified? Yes. Would <laughs> at you, all points. Would, would you have confessed to kidnapping the Lindbergh baby to get out of there? In other words, once they have you and the walls are closing in on you and you've experienced the isolation you are at, at you are compromised. Much worse the isolation. I'm sorry. The other the other prisoners. I didn't hear what you said. It was something much worse than isolation, and that was the other prisoners. Right. Yes, but I know where you're going. Uh, that you, you know you're, you're liable to say anything just to get out of there. So at some point I might have, but I mean from the time that they. Uh, you know, threw me in jail. Uh, I, I kind of figured that I, I mean, the guy was related to the King. It was like a absolute monarchy. Right. Uh, you know, his father, I think his father. So he was like the King's nephew. And I, and he said, don't worry, I'll get you out of there. Okay. I am convinced that every confession is suspect. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Me too. I, I, I'm utterly convinced now that, People will say whatever is necessary to fall to the good graces of a detective to facilitate better treatment. Well, certainly some people will. Uh, you said every, so that's, you know, maybe not. Yeah. So I wouldn't, I don't know that I would go that far, but uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people do. I mean, that's, that's the whole 
well, one of the whole reasons why torture is ineffective. It, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you torture somebody enough, they'll say whatever you want them to say to get the torture to stop. Right. Torture is really about satisfying the sadistic urges of the people doing the torturing. That's all it is. I agree. Uh, you know, I think some of them thought that they might get some valuable information out of it too, uh, but it certainly does that. You know, I, I wrote a, a, a I wrote something this afternoon. I don't know that I'm done with it yet. Uh, for, for either I'm going to put it up either tonight or tomorrow. About it's a, it was a psychological study at the Commonwealth University uh, of I think it was called actually Virginia Commonwealth University, uh, the, and the psych department did a study of. Um, actual uh, uh, frontal lobe activity when somebody attacks somebody from the from the out group. So, in other words, you know, uh, if if you if you want to harm someone who is one of them, not one of us, you get really excited, and and it and it, it affects the the all the pleasure uh, channels in your brain. Extremely right. interesting today. Right. right. So I would imagine torturing somebody. You know, you you know, <laughs> it's better than a boner. <laughs> right. Right. Well, let's talk about January six. Which before we do that, let me ask you a question. Since I just said something uh, um, that could be offensive to people, um, and you know, I I think I'm a little older than you. I'm not sure how old you are, but I'm seventy three or four. And, and sometimes I feel like I say something in jest or it's just my way of speaking. And it could really be offensive to younger people, not necessarily to you, but I'm asking you about more like people who, you know, maybe your daughter, uh, your son, you know, if, if a comment like that, that I just made is if that, if you think that's really offensive. I was only offended because I didn't say it. Yeah. I said, not like you. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things I wrote in the, in the latest little, uh, episode of, of my memoir that I posted, I mentioned, uh, the first time I got laid and in, and when I was describing it, I mentioned that it was, it was an older black woman and I defined older as meaning about 21, 22, maybe 20. Well, she would, no, I was 15. I know. I'm just saying that's... When you're 15, someone who's like 22 right. is, you know, could be 60. I mean, right. <laughs> what's the difference? Right. Uh, and, and then, you know, I'm rem- it happened in a, in, in a, a Greyhound yard in Jacksonville. And, and, I, and you know, there's just certain things. I, I don't remember her name. Uh, she was a passenger. We sat next to each other on the bus from... Uh, where, where was it from? Um... I don't know, from New Jersey to, uh, I was going to Miami. She got off in Jacksonville, but the bus stopped. Where did you get off? Where did the both of you get off? No, we, there was a, a rest stop in Jacksonville. That's where you got off. Okay. And that was her last stop, but not mine. I had to get back on the bus and go down to Miami beach. Uh, I, it started as a hitchhiking adventure. I was hitchhiking to visit my grandparents. I got picked up by the police on the Jer- New Jersey turnpike. My father came to get me. I thought he was going to beat me up, but instead he, he paid for a ticket to go down to Miami Beach, which was a shock to me. I mean, to this day, I don't remember many nice things he did for me, but that was one. 
and on and I sat down next to this woman and and we had a really nice uh, time through Virginia and the Carolinas and Georgia <laughs> and uh, and then everybody went in one direction towards the uh, kind of a lunch uh, luncheonette and it went to the, to the men's room and ladies rooms but she took my hand and pulled me off in another direction and uh, you know so I'm writing about this thing and there were a few things that I remember about it but one of the main ones I remember about it was that we did it in a, in basically in this giant tire. And I, and I didn't, I mean, I, I was kind of like a passive, uh, you know, participant who it was happening to rather than I didn't make it happen. And even, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to do anything. I had no idea. And she figured it all out and did it all. Um, being an older woman. And, but what I remember is that the, uh, her, the color of her skin, which is very, very, very dark, kind of blended into the color of the tire. Mm-hmm. And that's, so I wrote about that and someone told me that, that could be a very hurtful comment and, and people might be very offended by it. What do you think? Uh, I, there's a, a tiny part of me that can, understands why people would say that but oh good tell me i'm sorry tell me i think anytime you're talking about somebody's color you're touching a third rail but you're even though ju- i like this woman huh even though i like this woman right I, good- but I, I think you're you're touching a third rail and to 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 describe I, I but you're you're you you're a descriptive writer and that's what you're you're being honest i don't have a problem with it i think but i wonder if it's because we're old that's what i'm thinking so i just sent it to uh to a colleague of mine who's in his 20s uh, to, to, and I'm, I didn't tell him what I'm looking for. I just sent it to him and asked him what he thinks. And, and yeah, it just happened a few minutes ago. So I'll wait to hear back from him. I, I respect this guy. He's very, very, very smart. And uh, he's, you know, extremely woke. Now, I don't see people's race. I just see their religion. I judge people by their religion, <laughs> not their race. <laughs> so you're asking the wrong person. Tell me about... The, the January 6th hearings. This show has been very blasé about J- the January 6th hearings. Yet yeah, it was terrible. Arrest them already. If it's so bad, let's move on. But you're writing that that they have created some political will that Kinziger is saying the polls show that the American people have soured on Trump. Well, Kinziger, very sour. Uh, towards Trump for sure, right. but the poll, it was, it was one poll that came out after the, um, after the, I think it was after the third, the third one. And it showed that a majority, a small majority, like 58% maybe of people think that as, uh, in, as opposed to 40% who don't think this. So f- 58% of American, I think it was adults, uh, not voters. So 58% of American adults, this is the Ipsos poll, think that uh, Trump should be uh, held accountable criminally 
for what happened that day. So that's quite a bit up from other polls that I've seen in the past. And, and the, uh, the polls in the past have been trending downward uh, for, for that question. So in other words, it was more about a year ago, and then it's been going down ever since. And, and then since the, um, the hearing started, it's, it turned around and it's been going up again. So that's good. And, but, uh, and so, you know, I mean, in, in the last, the last one I wrote, I was trying to set up for what's going to happen tomorrow and and in in the following ones because they're saving the heavy guns for last. I mean, Liz Cheney as um, uh, as as the co-chair gets to talk every time, and she's a heavy gun, so she's she's doing a good job. But you know, I mean, the the weakest person that they could have possibly had speaking was uh, Pete Aguilar, who's just worthless. Absol- I mean, he's not a lawyer; he's an idiot. He, he's, uh, I don't mind hurting his feelings, but, uh, you know, and then tomorrow is going to be Adam Schiff. And as you probably know, Adam Schiff and I don't agree on a, on a lot of po- politics or policy, I should say, but he's really, really smart. He knows what he's doing. He, you know, he's a, he's a Stanford graduate, which means he's, you know, something. And then he graduated with, uh, I forgot which honor it was, but some huge honor from Harvard law school. And then he was the, the assistant U.S. attorney for Central California, and he was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee of the State Senate here before he was elected to Congress. And then in Congress, he's now the chair of the Intelligence Committee. What I'm saying is he's not an unaccomplished idiot at all. I know him personally. He's a very, very, very smart guy. Pete Aguilar is a moron. Uh, Aguilar did the last one. He stumbled through it. He couldn't He couldn't understand the... Uh, you know, the, uh, Ludwig, the, the judge who, who spoke and he asked him a question and, L- and Ludwig looked at him like he was an insect <laughs> mm-hmm. and said to him, uh, you know, I mean, uh, Iowa said, well, what do you mean when you said that, uh, Trump committed a crime? And Aguilar sort of just looked at him and said, I mean, I meant what I said. <laughs> right. And Aguilar just shriveled up into nothing and went on to the next, uh, <laughs> the next witness. I looked so up. That, we're not going to have that. When he was, we're t- not going to have that with, with tomorrow with uh, um, Adam, and we're not going to have that with Jamie Raskin at all. Right. I mean, Jamie Raskin, I don't, I can't say I know every one of them, but I know, I, I know the works of every one of them, and I've watched all those numbers, and I feel confident in saying that Jamie is the most brilliant person on that committee, and uh, you know, and, and I and I know I knew him before he ran. Just like I knew Adam before he ran for Congress when he was a senator, I knew Jamie. Uh, he was the um, counsel for people for the American Way, where I was on the board. So I know I know this guy, and I know his work, and I know he's brilliant, and I know that Trump must be, you know, shivering at the thought of what's going to happen uh, when Raskin uh, takes over. I and, look- and, uh, and hates uh, hates Adam as well, and he's he's freaking out. I mean, if you notice the comments in the last two days from him. He's freaking out about what's going to happen tomorrow because Adam is, Adam is not Pete Aguilar. Adam knows what he's doing and he's going to, he's going to do, he's going to be brilliant tomorrow. I looked up Pete Aguilar to see what you had to say about him. I Did you get the picture of him like snorting Coke and drinking booze. All I could find, I said, Howie Klein, Pete Aguilar. And I see a headline from my show on YouTube. It says Democrat, Congressman Pete Aguilar, slimy corrupt shill for big oil who defiles Congress. 
guest Howie Klein. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> and I, well, that, that about, uh, no, Aguilar is, is, is a real, uh, a real piece of shit. He, he wasn't, he's not really a Democrat. He was part of the Jerry Lewis uh, machine years and years ago. Now, Jerry Lewis isn't the comedian with Dean Martin. Jerry Lewis was sort of the boss of San Bernardino, the Republican boss of San Bernardino. He's a very, very powerful member of Congress and extremely corrupt. Uh, and, and Aguilar was part of his machine. Eventually, Aguilar decided to, and surprised everybody, he decided to run as a Democrat for office. Right. And he was appointed mayor of, um, a small town where he did a terrible job, just really, really botched things up. And, and in fact, when he ran for Congress, he ran a lot based on the fact that he was mayor and he came in third in that town. <laughs> he was mayor, a real bad, real, real bad character. So I, uh, you know, I, I sort of reiterated some of the things I've written about him over the years, including one that is interesting now because see, one of the things with Aguilar that you got to know and how he got on this, this, uh, committee, I mean, Pelosi is not a fool. She knows he's not, he's not, he's certainly not Adam Schiff and he's certainly not Jamie Raskin. Uh, but you know, she wanted, uh, she wanted Hispanic on there. And more important than that to her, I think was that she wanted a, a, a someone who is looked at as a rising leader and part of Hakeem Jeffries posse. And, and he is that. Now, the, the funny thing about Hakeem Jeffries' posse is that part of that is, is APEC. There is no, now remember, Hakeem Jeffries is an African-American. He's not some Jewish guy. But there is no one in Congress at this point who's more tied to APEC than Hakeem Jeffries. He's their guy. They're his organization. And I found this old, uh, this old transcript of a tape that I, that I transcribed years and years and years ago of Aguilar before he was in Congress when he was first running, talking about, uh, how bad APAC is, how bad Jews are, how, you know, he's sympathetic to Hamas, you know, the kind of things, half of, half of the stuff he said, just half of it would get him an instant, um, Five million dollars uh, against him from APAC. <laughs> that's how that's how they are. Uh, but of course, they love him because he's part of Hakeem Jeffries' uh, posse that that uh, is hoping to take over the Democratic Party, and uh, and it's in part being financed by APAC. Right. So anyway, that was off on a, on a, on a yeah, crazy tangent. I want to ask you about January six and Biden and the Democrats. He is more unpopular now than he's ever been. He he is not doing well. Who he is, and they realize they made a mistake. But uh, you know, I don't know if that has anything to do with anything except that. I mean, he's seventeen points roughly underwater. You write that that his disapproval rating is higher than his approval rating by seventeen points. Yeah, well, he- it varies. Not much from poll to poll. Some polls is a little better. Some polls a little worse. But it's always it's it's very bad. It's definitely deep underwater. And uh, you know, if people would have been reading down with tyranny, everyone in the country, they would have already known that and would have elected Bernie. Of course, of course, more Americans think this country is heading in the wrong direction. Seventy percent of Americans. Have you ever seen? Go ahead. That doesn't tell you much. Right. Because, 
you know, progressives think it's heading in the wrong direction for one reason, and fascists think it's headed in the wrong direction for the opposite reason. And so this this malaise, not malaise, you know, under Carter, it was a malaise. This is a, a, a complete... That's who he is. This is a capitulation. This is beyond a malaise. We've capitulated. We, you know, under Carter, we weren't saying it's over. We're saying we're prepared for the end here. Are we overreacting? Are both sides uh, overreacting? Yeah. Someone is thinking it's the end. They are overreacting. So not the end. What do you see happening after watching these hearings, seeing Biden being even more of a disaster than I mean, would you admit he's worse, even worse than you could imagine that he would have put? Didn't you think he was going to put some incremental numbers on the board, something that he could run on? Didn't you think he'd have some accomplishments? He he will. He, He will have some accomplishments. I mean, the the infrastructure bill is something. It's not what I like, but it's something. And he will be able to run on that, I assume. And then uh, I am guessing he's going to uh, forgive some part of student uh, debt. He'll be able to have that. Although a lot of people won't be happy because it won't be enough. He, uh, you know, there's probably going to be some sort of a uh, uh, Medicare negotiation with drug companies bill that, that passes. I, that's what I'm hearing. I heard he I, I wants mean, to I, raise premiums on Medicare. Well, it's not. No, he doesn't want to raise premiums. What he what he would like to do is allow uh, private insurance to do that. Uh, you know, he's not saying I want you to raise premiums. He's saying that uh, you know he's going along with the, he's he's going along with a Trump experiment with Medicare that that no progressive would ever approve of, but he's allowing it to happen or his administration is allowing it to happen. Who knows with him what he knows and what he doesn't know. Is he going to be challenged? Don't meet position where I have to defend him. I hate him. Right. <laughs> I don't want to defend him. I didn't vote for him. I, there's no chance. I never thought about voting for him. I never considered the alternative uh, being worse. I never, you know, would never have voted for him and didn't. On a scale of one to 10, 10 being, yep, he's in, one being, he's not going to run, he's too old. What do you hear about Bernie in 2024? Oh, you're asking me about Bernie. Um, Well, I have no inside information, uh, but if I had to guess, I would say if Biden doesn't run, it's better than 50-50 that Bernie will. Unless someone comes along who... Bernie feels, uh, you know, is, is a better candidate. Right. Meaning, uh, when I say a better candidate, uh, I mean someone who is uh, going to win because of standing up for progressive um, uh, policy. Right. And going into the midterms, Oish. the generic polling shows what? That the Republicans it, are... It, different polls on different days it's not as bad as you think uh you know one day the republicans are up by three the next day the democrats are up by three it's not good for the democrats but it's not as terrible as you might think because 
Well, because the Democrats have a lot of uh, gerrymandered districts, just as the Republicans do, where there's no contest. Uh, so it's, you know, so so it's not like they're going to get wiped out. Um, it's, uh, you know, I mean, the, when the Democrats are up by two or three points, that means they lose seats. They have to be up by more than that. They have to be up by closer to 10 points to win seats. And the, and the Senate? The Senate, it's hard to tell. Uh, you know, it, 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 you know, it comes down to very, very individual, just a few individual races and they're, they're difficult to call. I mean, it, it I mean, can you imagine that people are going to vote for that, uh, that, that I've got his name that Herschel Walker. Oh my God. I mean, can you imagine that against a guy like Raphael Warnock? I mean, it's just, it's like mind boggling to think, you know, except for the, the uh, Marjorie Trader Green fans, I can't imagine that you know, suburban Atlanta uh, is going to go for, for someone like Herschel Walker. It's just, uh, it's unthinkable. And, and that's where ele- elections are won and lost. The, you know, the, the, the inside of the big cities, it's, you've got Democrats. In the, in the rural areas, you've got Republicans. And then the Atlanta suburbs decide who wins and loses elections. Right, right. So what, we'll very quickly before you go, what do we have to watch tomorrow? I don't know. What do we have to watch tomorrow or today? What do we? Uh, Virginia. You, you know, I'm not. I'm not like uh, terribly excited about the races tomorrow. Uh, every race is important, but there's no. There's nothing like you know mind-boggling that Blue America jumped into, for example. I see. All right. Thank you, sir. Howie Klein, founder, treasurer, Blue America Pack. Read him every day over at Down With Tyranny. And uh, I will call you uh, and talk to you about this. Thank you. Very excited that we're ending at exactly uh, this time. So we're not keeping your next guest uh, hanging. Thank you. Thank you, Howie Klein. Bye. Bye. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. When we come back, we will talk with the great, the great, the great David Cobb. I'm traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Woolite and a little bag of weed. To saw bell novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room. In a Motel 6 Not too close to downtown But not out in the sticks I need my pen and teller Magic kit So I can do my tricks Got my favorite pillow Which I call Mr. Fluffy Four kinds of allergy pills In case I get stuffy A pound of Epsom salts Cause my ankles get puffy I'm traveling light 
got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. Sedatives and my antipsychotics. A high speed parallax motor, cause I'm into robotics. And my little red speedo, I like to do aquatics. I'm traveling late. Got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill. A copy of Lolita and my little blue pills. A Navajo blanket. wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self-esteem, I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my illnesses. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Office hours every Friday night. Go to my website, sign up for office hours, and while you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. I put out a weekly newsletter. Joining us is David Kopp. He ran for president on the Green Party ticket, and he managed Ralph Nader's presidential campaign in Texas. Welcome, sir. Thank you, David. Uh, this was the first time uh, I was able to hear in its totality the new uh, theme song. Uh, uh, it's good stuff. I just want to say uh, I really appreciate the, uh, the, the culture and the art into the politics. Good work. You're talking about Professor Mike Steinell. Professor Mike Steinell. And you know what? Uh, it's funny because my wife, because we go on walks together. Uh, let me see if I can do it right now because I've got this new uh, tune in my head. Uh, uh, 
He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. Oh, right. It's yeah. time right now to the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. I, yeah, I'm not genius. joking. My wife can sing it because I, I, I think it's such a catchy tune. So this is just a new one. So yeah, he, I appreciate the music. He is, and he'll be here in about, I don't know, 90 minutes. How have you been? I haven't seen you in a little while. It's true. It's true. Well, you took, you actually took a break. Good job. I hope you actually took a break, my friend. I mean, you, know, <laughs> you can only run on anger, righteous anger for so long before you need to stop and, and do something. Did you do anything fun? Uh, I can't comment at this time while it's still a criminal matter. <laughs> I, very well. Yeah, uh, I will. I will. I will take. I will take a peek. Uh, you know, remember when I ran for president, David Feldman? I said I ran on my arrest record. I've been to jail for justice, uh, and I reckon before this, uh, uh, before we actually win the world, I want to live in. I'll probably have to go again. Uh, so you know, as, describe, as a lawyer, describe what it's like to be arrested, please. You know, well, it depends, right? Uh, I've been arrested at Earth First uh, protest, which was a markedly different thing uh, than a mass arrest uh, at D.C. I was also arrested uh, uh, as the Green Party's 2004 presidential uh, nominee when me and Michael Badnerick, the libertarian nominee, uh, tried to enter onto a public university's uh, uh, uh uh, grounds to deliver show cause papers to show cause why we were not allowed to participate in the corporate controlled presidential election. So each time was different, but I can tell you this for real, when uh, uh, every time I've been arrested for justice, it is an empowering experience because you're putting yourself on the line for what you believe in. You're, you're, you're proving that you're willing to do what people before us have been willing to do, which is to be disruptive for an honorable and noble cause. And it is empowering. And like, I, one of the things I say, David, is like, I'll just tell you this at the end of it, and I'm not saying it's romantic, I'm not trying to romanticize it, but I will tell you this, it's empowering and damn it all, my, my shirt just like my jacket just fit me differently. My spot, like my spine just felt, a, I, I walked a little bit taller. Uh, my eyes were a little bit more centered. Uh, I actually think that in a proper way, not in an individualistic way, but when you are part of a mass protest for justice, where the act of nonviolent civil disobedience is a tactic in, ser in service of a strategy trying to achieve a larger goal, it is fucking empowering. How long were you uh, held? Uh, each time I was out within 48 hours. Uh, and two times uh, within 24 hours, one 48 hours. And how did you find the conditions? Uh, pretty bad. Uh, you know, the, 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 the jails in this country are uh, not pleasant. There's no doubt about it. Were you certain you were going to be released? Uh, I mean, I knew at some point I would be released. I mean, because I, again, as a lawyer, I know the system and I know habeas corpus. I, and I had a support, I was, it was a support system each time, right? Uh, remember, that's the difference between being part of an organized movement that the arrest is a tactical 
decision made part of a larger strategy that actually has a plan for, to achieve a larger goal. So there is something fundamentally different about thoughtful, inten intentional, deliberate, nonviolent civil disobedience and just acting out. Right, right. Uh, interesting. I, uh, I don't recommend getting arrested in America. That's my advice. Well, listen, uh, not unless, again, it is part of a very strategic plan uh, and you have support, uh, jail support, uh, you, you have uh, legal backing uh, to be able uh, to engage the process to protect you because the state is uh, a racist, uh, a sexist, homophobic, settler colonial experience. I mean, I, I, this is an empire, right? Like we have to come to terms with the fact that this empire uh, it absolutely uh, does not value dissident, Dis dissidents. In prepping this show, I became interested in the police. I was shocked that they solve 1% of crimes in America. Oh, it's, it's terrible. And listen, as a lawyer, I've done a lot of know your legal rights. And the, so for everybody listening live, and for those of you listening um, uh, after the fact on the podcast, uh, I'm going to boil down what uh, take like what is probably the key lesson uh, in a 90 minute know your legal rights, and it literally can come down to two words. You ready? Cops lie, and I literally get the entire crowd to chat it with me. Cops lie. Cops lie. And when I say that, I'm telling you, I can point to you the 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 training materials where they are encouraged and trained to lie. Like they, they lie to you uh, as citizens in order to try to secure evidence, to try to secure conviction. They are incompetent as hell and they are also unethical as hell. And now they will say, oh, we only lie, uh, you know, in the course of the duties. Uh, but when we go under oath, all of a sudden, you know, we uh, you know, we always tell the truth. It's bullshit. The number of times that you can like in criminal matters, cops lie all the time. Now, is it a crime uh, for actually, a cop to lie? It is not a, a crime for a cop to lie to you. Absolutely not. Is it a crime uh, fact, for a cop? To, is it a crime for a cop to lie under oath? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And that's why they'll make the distinction. Yes, all the training materials that Cobb and other uh, uh, civil libertarians point to, you know, that's actually uh, when we're not under oath. But when we're under oath, we know the difference. And then we'll therefore uh, all of a sudden miraculously tell the truth. It's bullshit, David. You talk about the fetishization of politics in this country. We fetishize cops in America. We're, we watch these crime shows they're never violating anybody's bill, bill of rights. Right. Uh, I mean, it, there's a couple of things about uh, the criminal procedure. Number one, it is boring and uninteresting. Uh, secondly, it is depraved. Uh, and it shows the real underbelly of how this system actually works. There, it's not sexy. It's not interesting. Um, it's sort of the banality of evil up close and personal whenever you see how dehumanizing uh, the process is and the lack of just basic dignity uh, that the process gives to ordinary people. And, and especially if you are a person of color, if you are poor, 
if you're a transgendered uh, or a, a non-binary person. I mean, it's a very dangerous thing. If cops solve 1% of felonies, it's called clearance. If their record is that horrible, I mean, 1% of crimes are solved. It's even lower for uh, rape and sexual assault. It's phenomenal. What is the purpose of cops in America then? Look, to be very clear, the the real, like you have to, to answer the question, you have to actually go back to uh, the history of why uh, cops were uh, invented and what is modern day uh, policing all about. And the, the history, as any historian can tell you, it actually comes out of slave catchers. Uh, it was like that's literally the birthing of modern policing in the United States. And it's why, by the way, uh, even though the the U.S. really is considered, you know, sort of the uh, part of the, the Western Hemisphere and the, uh, the global north, we do policing fundamentally and profoundly different than any European country. No other uh, uh, global north or uh, Western uh, power does uh policing quite the way we do. And it's because of the history of the invention of the police. Uh, and it got so big so fast, bluntly because of slavery. Following the Civil War, uh, during Reconstruction, slave patrols uh, were created. There's a, a there's a very rich history uh, that the origins of modern day policing, the NAACP uh, has put out a, an amazing uh, a report on this uh, on the the birth of the slave patrols and uh, the lynching that came out of it. So the crisis in policing is really the culmination of a thousand other failures, failure of education, of social services, public health, uh, proper gun uh, control and regulation, criminal justice and economic development. Uh, and it's a continuing bias, the continuing cruelty and dehumanization that you see uh, and then again, the intersection between race and class uh, cannot be uh, overstated. So politically, the American people have internalized the uh, inefficiency, the ineffectuality of cops because so many crimes go unreported. You do not call the police. A lot of people won't call the police after a crime has been committed. Why do Americans fetishize the police then if they know if, if you're not white uh, and a lot of well, white people know have been pulled over by cops and, and have felt the chill on their neck. Why do we continue to fetishize the police and not question the role they play in our culture and our society? That's a very good question. And uh, I think it's time that we stop kidding ourselves. The police were created originally around slavery and and grew and, and now exist to control working class people. Like that's literally what the police actually do. You know, and uh, it does, act, and because I know that, uh, you know, on the last program, uh, not last week because you weren't here, but the last time that uh, we were on together, there was somebody in the chat who asked a very provocative question. Uh, and I did a little homework on that. 
Is this uh, about this Medicare for all? Is this about Medicare for all and Bernie and Fox? This was the specific. The specific question had to do with, hey, Cobb, you and Feldo are constantly tossing out that there's some mythical uh, way to get you know far right wing people. Well, let's uh, hold off on that for a second because I wanted to ask you about yeah. that. I, I wanted to ask yeah. you about that. Uh, I just want to ask you one. One more time about the cops. I had an interesting conversation. I wear a New York City baseball, uh, New York City cop baseball cap when I go outside. Uh, I just do that because I get interesting conversations. A lot of time people think I'm an ex-cop. And uh, about a week ago, I'm walking and this white couple says, are you a cop? I said, no. And the, the woman says, well, you know, uh, like you, we support the cops. And I said, why? And she says, because the woman who runs Black Lives Matter bought a house for a couple of million dollars in Los Angeles. And I said, what, what does that have to do with you? The, the Black Lives Matter people are, it's fake and, and, and the police are innocent. And I said, so you're concerned that Black Lives Matter might have misused a couple of million dollars. What do you think it costs you as a New York City taxpayer to have cops like we have? What does that mean? I said, are you aware that in the past 10 years, our city has paid out a billion dollars? A billion dollars to settle police brutality cases? That's not true. And the no, husband, it is true. It is true. And in fact, that that that's a billion dollars to just pay it pay out uh, litigation. That's actually not part of the budget. The New York Police Department budget uh, is actually five point four billion which is over 5% of the overall total, right? Like, so that's 5 billion budgeted for just what they are supposed to do. That billion is added on top of it. That's actually not part of their budget. So the husband who's trying, who doesn't know if I'm a cop or can't figure out who I am, goes, well, so uh, that's a lot of money. We should educate the cops. Instead of, you know, instead of defunding the police, we should educate the cops. And I and I said, educate them how uh, not not to shoot unarmed black men in the in the back. Is that, is that part of the training that we should talk about? Is that about education? You're going to tell me cops don't already know not to shoot an unarmed black man or to uh, pummel uh, somebody who's handcuffed with uh, a mop handle? Is that part of the educate? They have to, do you have to be taught that? If you're, if you have to be taught that, maybe you shouldn't be a police officer. And then the wife starts going, well, call, you, next time you get into trouble, call the police. What I should have said is, next time you're raped, call the police and see if they've, they arrest the rapist. See if they test the rape kit. What is the purpose of police in this country if they're not sending the rape kits off to be tested? What is the purpose of the police if they solve 1% of the crimes? What are we paying them for?
What is the again? Pro- it, it is it, it, its origin is in the slave patrols and enslavement, and uh, its current size and status is to control working class people. That's the reason that uh, urban police departments in the United States of America are so huge. Like there's, it, it is a matter of social control uh, and it protects property rights, not human rights. Okay, so I'm, two weeks ago, one of our listeners wrote, quote, are there any polls, studies, or accredited data that actually backs up the widely believed idea that there is a voting block of Fox News watching right-wingers who would come out from the shadows to vote for Bernie and single-payer health care. I don't know if you saw Bernie on Fox debating Lindsey Graham, uh, where he he mopped the floor with Lindsey. Do you think the Fox viewers, is there any indication that people watching that debate would think, you know what, Bernie, I'd vote for Bernie? Yeah, may, maybe, but but like I will say whoever, because it was an anonymous uh, question, I took it seriously and I did some research. And what I found is it was a great question, but as often is the case when you actually investigate something, you know, say, okay, let's just actually look at it. What I found found was the question is posed incorrectly. And the reason for that is there is good, hard scientific evidence on how people, uh, uh, voters, and how, let's just call them uh, a more or less liberal or progressive viewpoint, what the winning narrative is. And what they found was that a combination race-class is a uh, narrative is actually the winner. That unfortunately, too often, uh, uh, progressives either focus on race or focus on class separately. And in doing so, we lose. So let me just take a moment. This is actually from a research that was done by Lane Research Partners, Ian Haney Lopez, Professor uh, Ian Haney Lopez at UC uh, Berkeley. Uh, it's uh, Demos. Uh, there, uh, I'll drop into the link after I go through this. Uh, where this is from, but this is uh, this is all hard scientific uh, 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 polling that was done, and the methodology. It's worth pointing out uh, was uh, rigorous, uh, and they did it uh, with a moment-to-moment reaction of both the base, persuadables, and opposition, right? Uh, and and what they found is that uh, third, we as progressives have a roughly 23% base. That is people who are strongly concerned about bias against people of color, who believe people of color face greater barriers than whites and basically support our progressive uh, agenda on uh, class issues. That's 23%. The opposition is only 18%. These are folks who at their core think that wealth is a product of individual effort they oppose our pro- our progressive policy agenda. They hold African-Americans and Latinos responsible for their own actions. Not surprisingly, they tend to be older, Republican, and white. But here's the thing. Persuadables are 59%. They toggle between views that are shared by both our base and our opposition. 72% of them say that, quote, focusing on and talking about race is necessary to move forward 
forward toward greater equality. But 65% also believe that talking about race doesn't fix anything and may make things worse, right? So that's the basic frame. Now, what I'm getting at is that when we look at what actually works, uh, the, 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 the description and the winning narrative is to say, no matter where we come from or what color, what color we are, most of us work hard for our family. Today, certain politicians and their greedy lobbyists hurt everyone by handing kickbacks to the rich, defunding our schools, threatening our seniors with cuts to Medicare and Social Security. Then they turn around and point the finger for our hard times at poor families, black people and new immigrants. Now, I'm going to stop for a moment and point out, no matter where we come from or what our color, most of us work hard for our family, discusses race overtly, and it, it includes everyone. The next part uh, names racial scapegoating as a weapon that economically harms all of us, poor families, black people, and new immigrants. We say we need to join together with people from all walks of life to fight for our future, emphasizes unity and collective action. Again, the, what the studies show is the impact of a race class narrative is a winner, and it is, uh, it is a winner uh, as opposed to a colorblind narrative, uh, our base responds at 89%, our, uh, the, the unpersuadables at nine, uh, but the persuadables will react at 62%. And, uh, but get this, if you have a race class narrative, our base goes from 89 to 91. The, uh, the opposition support will go from nine to eight but we'll never get them anyway. But listen to this. The persuadables go from 62 to 66. Uh, so calling out divisive tactics with explicit reference to race beats opposition race baiting. Um, and again, there's like, I could go through the, the data, but it was like, so whoever asked the question, thank you for asking the question. And rather than go out and try to find research that supported my uh, original idea that that uh, you know that that Trump voters would vote for Bernie. What I actually found was there is good, hard scientific data that says if you're going to engage in electoral politics, do it with a combination of race and class, and do it with language that is inclusive. Uh, there is a, an approach that can be taken. The problem is, and I'm going to land the plane here. The problem is that the damn neoliberal Democrats who control the Democratic Party operation will never do that because they'll never be willing to talk about class because they will never support the policies that actually would make that winning strategy a, a winner. Right. Dr. Harriet Fraud. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. No, no, Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. Your comment. Hi. I, I, Dr. Fraud, it's a good a pleasure to see you. And I, I know it's time for your segment, so. Well, I would love her, I, I'd love you to stick around, David, just so Dr. Fraud could comment on this for a second. No, I'm right with you. I mean, I think of how Martin Luther King went to the Longshoremen's Union, actually the dock workers in California, and he said the best way to integrate this country is union building. We're all in this together. And that's what I think. You know, I think that 
the unions that are growing everywhere in the United States are where to go because it unite. It says we're all in the same boat. We're in the same boat economically, and we need each other. And that's the most progressive thing. Also, I'm the most impressed, and I think we all should have a moment of celebration where race and class came together in Colombia, a leftist, that's Colombia, South America, a leftist one today for the first time. He used to be in the, um, the rebel group, and he won. And in France... Mélenchon, only about a month ago, decided, okay, left has to make a coalition and united the progressive unions. And in France, there are all sorts of communist and um, socialist trade unions because unions are organized around political ideology. And no union head can make more than its highest paid workers, so they don't wow. they don't have this wow. kind of hierarchy. Whoa, 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 Corporate whoa. heads. What did you just say? No, Germany's the same way. No union leader can make more than his or her highest paid worker. Wow. So that means that you don't have that kind of huge division of a bunch of bureaucrats in a kind of capitalistic structure. Oh, and by the way, unions also are guaranteed a spot on board of directors, at, I know, in Germany and in most of the industrialized world. I mean, again, this American exceptionalism does exist, but there's nothing good about it, actually. Yeah. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> and one of the things that's different about France, I should say, at this moment of wild victory for the left in France is that when the United States organized expunging the communists from everything, because they said that anyone who believes in communism believes in the violent overthrow of the government, although there was no such action, nobody did what they did on January 6th, and all, but still they deported and arrested people. And unfortunately, the head of the labor movement of the AFL agreed to throw the leftists out, the communists, and then their fellow travelers, the socialists, and then the leftists out of the unions. So they lost the whole spark of the unions, which is we're fighting for the working class, and they started to diminish. Until now, the young ones are talking about capital. But what happened in both of those places is the left allied with the labor movements, with the indigenous movements, with the feminist movements, and with the black liberation movements, and the one. You know, you, you have to unify to win. And the center of that unification was class. But everything was seen as a struggle against capitalist divisions between people. And I think it's a moment that we should learn from because about a month ago, they didn't even have this new party of all of the ecologists. I forgot the ecologists. Is it a party or a coalition in France? It's a coalition of the climate people, the race people, the socialists, 
the communists, all so, of them. So, the feminists. Beat Le Pen for president, but just a few days ago, uh, Le Pen's party got 10, 10 times the number of seats in their off election year. And most observer, like, so the fascists had a huge uh, gain. They had an increase too. They got 90. And, and the point and is, the, the, got 131 seats. Correct. So what I'm saying is that the polarization that uh, Dr. Fraud and I have been, like, again, I don't think that we're creating the polarization. I think we're observing and describing and trying to get your audience, Feldo, to understand that we are at a historic conjuncture, a Gramscian conjuncture. It's either gonna be some version of eco-socialism or some version of fascism. The center cannot hold. It cannot hold, and what has happened is that People have lost hope in it. That's why America is exploding. That's why there are already 250 mass killings more than this year. That's more than we have days this year. And the the homicides and suicides and addiction and stealing and rape, they're all up because people are going mad. And they either have a choice to unite and fight back as they are in unionizing drives and political movements or just lash out because the thing they believed in, that American dream is dead. That if you work hard, you'll get ahead in life as long as you're white and male. And the majority were white, were whites at that time. But now, no, the biggest employers track you with a tracking device and you can't stop for a minute. The biggest employer is uh, Walmart and then comes Amazon and then come the call centers, huge centers, and then come fast food. You can work your ass off. You might get to be a manager, but not make very much more. And you still have horrendous hours. That dream is gone. And people are left without one. And we don't have a left to capture people's political rage. So it comes out much more personally. You know, it's interesting when, when you think of when you think of Walmart or Amazon or a fast food restaurant, you can move up not get more money, but get more power over other individuals. They're offering you power in lieu of money. It's what we offer our police. We offer them power over other people. Well, the police don't have power over the people who really make the decisions. But of course, they offer you a managerial position. Chris Smalls was an assistant manager before he started the Amazon labor union drive. They offer you a little bit more money. That's it. And some some more ability to boss people around. But it really is not a compensation. Right. The hope would be working together and being able to say, yes, we can. We can do it together, counting on one another and feeling our power instead of powerless and lashing out, which is happening all over this country. Now, you, you, you speak of the union movement and Chris Smalls and Starbucks and this new wave of unionization. 
Jeff Bezos and uh, Schultz, the, the, the head of Starbucks, have paraphrased Andrew Jackson, who famously said to, I think, Chief Justice Taney, you made your ruling, judge, now go enforce it. And while these Starbucks shops have voted to join a union, Mr. Schultz refuses to recognize the NLRB. He refuses to recognize the United States government. Jeff Bezos will not negotiate with Christian Smalls. The NLRB, our government, says this is now a union warehouse. You must negotiate. And they are taking a page from Andrew Jackson's playbook and saying to the NLRB, you've made your ruling, go enforce it. They they fancy themselves as Andrew Jackson. They Schultz and Bezos. Fan- Jackson, they bought the place. They fancy themselves as the rulers of America yeah. because they are. Let's face it. You know, our representatives are mainly bought off. I looked up the statistics. It blew my mind. There are five, four hundred and third. No, there are five hundred and thirty-five Congress representatives and senators together. There are 12,137 lobbyists whose full-time job is to push those representatives into a profitable situation for the people who hired them. It's overwhelming. We've lost. And on some level, like Leonard Cohen's song, everybody knows. Everybody knows. And it just is a question of recognizing that we can do something about it. And again, I'm going to just jump in to say, isn't it a shame that at least on rhetoric, Trump and the right wing is using more populist type rhetoric and language? Now, they don't mean it to be sure. No, they don't. But they use it. But they use it like this is what's frightening to me. Democrats are going to get their clocks cleaned because they have no idea what they're actually or the neoliberals don't like they 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 are misplaying this historic moment profoundly. And it's it's like I am frightened by this fascist movement. But, yes, but I am are the neoliberals, excuse, excuse me for one second. Will the neoliberals lose if the Republicans and the fascists take over? Oh, yes, yeah. they will, because they'll have some control over them. However, what happens is that you have two capitalist parties. The Democrats are not willing to do what needs to be done, which is, for example, Biden could get the young people if he canceled college debt, but then the banks would be displeased with him because the kids owe, you know, owe a lot of loans. He could decide to go to the FDs. Tell the FDA they have to authorize abortion pills over the counter in the United States. He has that power. He also has the power to make price controls, to have an excess profits tax. He could do like Nixon, hardly a radical, who made a wage price freeze. He could make a price freeze. One he of the could p- use executive power to Absolutely. declare a climate emergency. Always, if he made a price freeze... He would offend the corporate donors who are the employer class because they're the ones who set the prices and are gouging people. 
He could have an excess profits tax on the oil industry that has done so wonderfully as everybody's hurting for gas, but he doesn't do anything. What they are willing to do, the Republicans are willing to promise everything, even though they won't deliver. And to talk to ordinary people about their suffering. But both are corporate parties and the Democratic Party is doing so little. They made Juneteenth a holiday, but it doesn't cost them economically to do so. And they're not doing anything to solve the basic problems. They have Powell. They say we count on Powell to control who's the head of the um, Federal Reserve to control inflation. Hey, Powell was hired by Trump. I'm sure he'd like to see you fail on that. All they'd have to do is a wage price freeze, or at least a price freeze. Whereas Mélenchon, who just won wildly, they, you know, Macron's going to be stymied. He can't get his bills through because the majority of, of the seats, he has a scarce majority. He can't get anything through. And Mélenchon's proposal is a price freeze and across-the-board interest um, increase in wages. Okay, that would go over big. But then he would offend the capitalists. I think they're, they're tied. The, someone like Biden, who, let's face it, he comes from a state that whose biggest industry is tax write-offs by having corporations be there. He also voted against Anita Hill. This is not a radical fellow. But he's not going to go somewhere that offends corporate America because then they won't contribute to the Democratic coffers on which they are dependent. And so they're paralyzed. And they're paralyzed in France, too. They're now losing in the Ukraine. They lost four wars. Now they're losing in the Ukraine. But they've sold a lot of armaments. And the Democrats aren't saying that. And again, I just agree with Dr. Fraud. It's because, like, if if like, I don't think of myself as uh, as a uh, you know ultra leftist. What I do have, though, is an analytical framework for understanding how the world operates, and how I understand the world operates is a, a capitalist political economy. Uh, and in the United States, white supremacy and a settler colonial history and a heteropatriarchal power over dominating uh, framework. And you see, for me, that's like glasses, right? Like once you understand all of that, everything in this country makes sense. The problem is if you don't understand those things, almost everything will be confusing to you because we're taught liberty, justice, equality, democracy, except for none of that stuff actually happens, right? Yeah. This is this is why, it, to me, it is actually profoundly liberating to have honest conversation about the intersection yes, yes. between a capitalist uh, political economy, a white supremacist culture, a heteropatriarchal domineering uh, sort of, uh, you know, culture, uh, in, and a settler colonial history. Now, here's the thing. Most of us want the same thing. And if we actually were serious about a true democratic republic where ordinary people were empowered to have agency over their lives and could participate in a meaningful way with how the society operated, 
we would win. Now, would would all of the things that I want happen? No, like the polling data is clear, but the polling data is equally clear. Like no matter how you slice it, if you talk about healthcare as a fundamentally human right, it's a super majority. Right. If you talk about the need to address the climate crisis, it's a super majority. If you talk about bringing the police under control and stop killing black and brown people, again, a super majority. On almost all issues, things that we would call progressive or liberal are super majority. Not all, but most of them, we have super majorities. The problem is we, the people, don't actually govern in this country. We have no, a capitalist society. We have it's the best government money can buy. That's the trouble. You need billions to run for president. You need millions to run for all the other offices, except city council, which in the, in New York is becoming very radical because you don't need a huge war chest, but really it's bought and sold. And, you know, China has a lot of awful stuff and a lot of controlling dictatorial stuff, but they are very, very much regulating their capitalists. And so although they are harsh about it, they've had 20,000 people killed by COVID We've had a million, and they're a country with a billion, I think it's 373,000, but it's over a billion people. We have 350 million people and a million people dead. So on the basic things that we all care about, like decent health care, being able to live, they're outstripping us because we're hobbled by having to appease capitalist profiteers and having our representatives, 535 of them, being lobbied by 12,137 lobbyists who often write the legislation. It's bought and everybody knows it. It's a question of believing we can make it different. That's the big thing. And that's what Mélenchon achieved that's what they achieved in Colombia. That's what they achieved in Argentina when they have abortion law supported by indigenous people, the labor movement, the feminist movement, of course, and the socialists. That's what they won in Chile when the socialists won. These are historic things. And what America has been so hurt by is the anti-communism that made anything leftist suspicious. And yet, because of the necessity of changing this, that is changing. Marjorie Taylor Greene still calls everybody a communist, but it doesn't work well. You know, that there is an enormous opportunity here. We just have to get people together under a, a common banner, the way Mélenchon did in France which is wild. They've never got, they always said the left will never unify. It did. It's astonishing. And now they have, they have the most seats outside of, you know, Macron. And they want to have a uh, Mélenchon to be the prime minister. So the president will not get along very well with the prime minister and he won't be able to get his bills through. They'll be working on bills like 
Price freeze, wage, profit, and raise, raise, wage, raise. Amazing. It's just amazing. And in um, Colombia, where they just won the presidency, the vice president is a black woman who was a cleaner and not afraid to say so. I'm proud to say she worked hard. There's a whole changing. It isn't assumed that because somebody owns a business, he knows how to regulate anything or manage everything. Most businesses fail. It's assumed if you worked hard and are in the union, you're, you know, you'll be very helpful. So that we have to learn from these other countries. There's, you know, people know it's finished. They really know. And either they're in despair or denial. Prosperous people can afford denial or starting to do something about it. And that's that's where the Chris Smalls and the uh, Starbucks union standing up. And for the first time, they announced today, Apple workers and an Apple store organized into a union. Grinnell College, every worker at Grinnell College is in a union. All the tech workers and the um, student workers, the graduate students are in unions in the whole University of California system. This is amazing. And that, that is the hope, I think. Again, they voted to go union. That doesn't yes. mean Apple will recognize the United States government. Yeah, except that then what do people do about it? Well, should we boycott Starbucks? I mean, I, we tell people not to shop at Amazon on the right. show. Well, is, is it time to say don't go to Starbucks? I think it is. I've stopped going to Starbucks. Unions at Starbucks advised that. Also, they have had a huge drain on their customers because they're so anti-union and it's been publicized. The head of um, Starbucks fired a woman who was a union organizer and he said, no, she was not fired because she was a union organizer. She wasn't even fired at all. She just had a strong talking to, but she taped it. She taped him firing her for her union activity and it went all across Starbucks. It was very helpful. They are going to have to. They need workers. That's the problem. We create their wealth. And they are going to have to listen. And the more workers get together and threaten a general strike where everything closes down, the more we'll show our muscle. That's what they do in France and Germany when the transportation workers go on strike, the teachers walk out. The subway stops, the electricity stops, the gas stops because the big, um, those big unions are communist unions and also because they're in solidarity. By the and way, that's what our hope is. Starbucks is threatening that if you vote to unionize, it will je- jeopardize any gender affirming health care. That's what came out last week. Well, that's true. I guess that's just his threat. Mm-hmm. But there's no way that they can get away with that if they have to negotiate a contract with all these people. Because part of it can be that gender uh, transformation is part of the, the medical package that has to be guaranteed. Because they can declare whatever they want. If the people who make their money won't go along with it, they can't do it. 
Right. And American workers are just waking up to that. You know, they told Chris Smalls that uh, what he was doing would definitely fail. It didn't. Now, you are a founding mother of, of Women's Liberation. Liberation second wave. So, according to Bloomberg, Starbu- Starbucks has let Roseanne Williams, president of their North American division, go. She's stepping down. She's been there for about 20 years. This is a female president of Starbucks North American division. She's being let go because of, as you mentioned earlier, her acrimonious relations with union organizers. And she's now being replaced by Sarah Trilling, who is going to continue her fight against unions. I was reading about, in the New York Times, they were, uh, I think his name is Ron Lieber. He was interviewing these mutual funds, the heads of two mutual funds who uh, only invest in companies that help the planet. And one of the women who runs this investment firm said, the first place to start in our investment, we look for companies that are run by women. If the company is run by a woman, then we know to invest in it because it's going to improve the lives of others. Your thoughts on investing in I don't com- think that's so. I mean, Margaret Thatcher right. was a woman, although um, my British friend said she was a man in drag. That's because my British friend was a feminist and didn't want to acknowledge that. Hillary right. Clinton's a woman who would sell other women out on a dime and certainly ignored her husband's predations on women. Right. Look, just because right. you have a vagina doesn't mean you're going to be a progressive person. However, women, because we have been more discriminated against, are often more sensitive to other people, just as black people who have been terribly discriminated against also tend to be more progressive, but not always. You have the Hermit Keynes. At the, you were there at the creation of second wave feminism. Did you yes, think? I was. Did you think you would produce women who would turn on the poor? Well, we were very naive, and we felt because we were at the bottom of the heap. If we stood up, everybody'd have to come with us. Right. But we didn't think of, we didn't imagine that the CIA would put um, Gloria Steinem in our movement and give us Ms. without ads. We were so stupid, we didn't say, gee, where did she get the money? Right. And they made it a gender-only movement. That was a CIA-FBI initiative. What we wanted was to bring up everyone so that men and women and everyone and of all colors and genders and so on could have a chance in life in our wealthy country. What Clinton and what Steinem wanted was equality within a system of ever-increasing inequality among the poor and the rich. We didn't imagine that, so that we were very limited, and we didn't emphasize the class aspect because there are corporate feminists like Hillary Clinton 
who wants to allow women to assume equal positions at the top of a horrendously unequal hierarchy that promotes inequality. And to have some black people in those positions to oppress other black people and so on. We didn't imagine that. We were very limited. We now can see the danger now that the fox has grabbed the chickens, you know. Right. Before uh, we had in mind, we were leftists. Right. I want to ask you before you go about mental health. But first, I like to name check the enemy. Starbucks is run by Howard Schultz. His name is Howard Schultz. He has a $40 million penthouse here in New York City. His name is Howard Schultz. He's a union-busting billionaire. And no matter how much he talks about uh, equity and climate change, he is a fraud. Uh, Roseanne Williams, her name is Roseanne Williams. She was president of North American uh, North America Starbucks. After 20 years, she is stepping down because she was exposed to be anti-union and breaking NLRB rules. She is being replaced by Sarah Trilling, whose new job is to destroy the unions at Starbucks. Her name is Sarah Trilling. And general counsel for Starbucks, Rachel Gonzalez, has been fired by Howard Schultz as they continue uh, to complain inside about the failure to stop the union effort. I will never step foot in a Starbucks until they negotiate with the, they're not negotiating with the unions, even though they are in violation of the law. They do not recognize the American government. They are separatists. Yes, they are taking executive privilege and we'll see if they can get away with it. But we actually have the power in our numbers. And of course, these people all profess liberalism. In the gay community, they call them rainbow capitalists. You know, they show the rainbow flag and all they care about is profit and they'll sacrifice anybody. Right. But, you know, I think... Let's talk about mental health. Let's talk about how... Because I, I, before you go, and I know you wanted to talk about this, the empire is, is, decla- falling. is falling. What does that do to our mental health? Because I've noticed over the weekend, I was sleeping a lot, and I was thinking, why am I feeling so down? I thought, I live, I'm surrounded. Dying empire. Yeah, so what, what does this do to us? Well, in the first place, it means that the hope that you grew up with, that's gone. It's over. The party is over. We looted the world to give our people a a slightly better standard of living. There were jobs, there were opportunities, particularly if you were a white male. But even if you weren't, you could always get a job. That's gone. People's jobs are terribly oppressive. They are being trained as adjuncts to a robot. You know, there's even a a fast food joint, Freshies, in the South, where you put your order in at the drive-up window. It, It goes to a robot 
that then fixes the order so that you have no human contact. The lack of trust, the lack of human contact, the lack of hope is enervating. People are tired. People are angry. They're losing. They're losing their country, and it's out of control. The guy at the head of the country can't deliver. There's fascists who would beat you up in a New York minute. Things are collapsing. We have the most deaths in the world relative to population. And the most populous country, China, has 20,000 deaths to our million. We're losing. And you have a sense of loss. And you don't have a sense of, okay, there is a hope. There is a party. There is one place for us to go to. And we will win. That's what that coalition did for people in France. And in Colombia. And so that there hasn't been a force to unify us and inspire us. And we see just misery. I mean, I live in Stytown, which is a wonderful place to live. I live if there. I leave, yeah. If I leave Stytown on 14th Street, I see such desperation. People selling whatever kind of expired goods they have to put out on the sidewalk for cheap. People sleeping. People, you know kind of bleary-eyed from drugs. It's a disaster. And it's very sad. And it can get us down because we don't have a unified place to put our hope and energy. And we're being told that the economy is stronger than ever, that there's a threat of recession, but we're doing great, more jobs. He's producing jobs, 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 and the stock market Little is little tanking. Well, a bear twenty percent bear market off these record highs is not. I mean, no, it's not terrible. But on the other hand, there was exposed on the internet a note between Jamie Dimon, head I think of J Morgan Chase, and the head of um, Goldman Sachs, saying an economic hurricane is coming, batten down the hatches. They have no need to pretend. This is a disaster. We, we're losing the war, spend billions arming people in what was a suicidal and stupid effort. And Americans are terrified and the fascists are taking advantage of this. It's very scary. And the armaments industry is just another example that capitalists have bought off our legislative representatives and they will not spare us so that an 18-year-old can come into the store and buy two AR-15 automatic weapons, which they cannot, they are not for sale to customers in any other country in the world. And that's because we are held hostage by these capitalists, by the gun manufacturers, and by the, the big military-industrial complex. And the cops are being hired to put the lid on it, which they can't. They really can't. Which begs the question, why aren't the cops saying to the NRA, why are you giving weapons to our enemy? Well, the cops are against the NRA and they make statements all the time. But they don't control the legislators either. It's the people at the top who do. It's the gun manufacturers, not the cops. Well, They're working class thugs. 
We love Dr. Harriet Fraud. She is a mental health counselor, hypnotherapist. She practices in New York City, founding member of the feminist movement, as well as the journal Rethinking Marxism. She hosts Capitalism Hits Home, and she has a show on Pacifica Radio Wednesdays at 2.30 that you can all Except listen to. Except this week because they have fundraising, but usually at 2.30 interpersonal update. And I am part of a team that has a program, a podcast called It's Not Just In Your Head. And I do that with Liam Tate and Ikoi Hiro. Fantastic. We love you. Thank you. We hope to see you next week. I had a week off. You're so inspired me. Thank well, yes, you. Yes, and you deserved it. This is great. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Fry. Bye-bye. Thank you. Let's Thank you. Let us now go to San Francisco, the San Francisco Bay Area, where Peter B. Collins is standing by. He is a Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer. And if you, by the way, have any questions in the Zoom audience, submit them in the Q&A, and we'll spend the last five minutes for audience questions. I want to talk to you about the Democrats losing the House, probably the Senate, how Biden's latest moves are probably making them worse, price gouging by U.S. oil companies, and his going off to Saudi Arabia to kiss MBS. Where do you want to start, Peter B. Collins? It's good to see you. I've had a week off. so it's been- Well, it's lovely to see you, David, and I enjoyed a little break as well. And I joined Dr. Fraud in congratulating you on taking a break. Uh, since I came into your orbit, I haven't seen you even pause to go to that cabin in the Adirondacks or <clears throat> to go out to, you know, party on Long Island. So you went to Washington, D.C. Did you get to the Air and Space Museum? Uh, it's, I've been advised I cannot comment on an ongoing criminal matter. But, but what I didn't ask about that. I asked about tourist things. Did you get to the Hirshhorn Gallery? That's my favorite art museum. You know, taxpayer supported. Without, uh, I, I think I'm allowed to say this. When I was in jail, I was worried about somebody because they didn't know where I was. And I turned to my fellow comedy writer. And I said, I can't even enjoy jail. I can't even (laughs) enjoy the terror of being locked up in our penal system. I I can't relax. I'm worrying because I haven't, somebody doesn't know where I am at this point. I couldn't even enjoy prison. That's how how I need, now I need a vacation. I, have you ever well, been arrested? And, and now, now you're you're in prison uh, verbally because you can't talk about it. And so no. I, I promise you, I will not torture you further uh, with questions about your vacation. Thank but you. I look forward to when the cuffs are off, the bail <laughs> is posted, and you can tell us the full story. Have you ever been in jail? No. Uh, well, <clears throat> I have never. Been <laughs> I have visited prisons hundreds of times. And I, San Quentin is the one where I've been 150 times, but they have never asked me to spend the night. (laughs) They never said said stay. (laughs) You went to San Quentin 150 times. Sure. Yeah. It's it's three miles from where I live. Uh, I can almost see it from our deck. And I know a lot of people who uh, have been stuck there. 
and it's not pleasant. It's not, but you know, the, the human ability to adapt to the most ugly conditions is something that I find uh, just truly remarkable. And the, the apex of that is I have interviewed four or five men who spent uh, more than 10 years at Guantanamo. And they are, are appropriately angry at their mistreatment, but they are not bitter people. And when I have apologized to them on behalf of thinking people in this country, they tend to brush it off and just say, you didn't do it. You know, I, I'm pissed at Rumsfeld, Bush, you know, name, name your uh, but we did do dark it. actor. But we have done it. We, 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 the, the carelessness of not really understanding solitary confinement. Uh, my, my suggestion to everybody listening is to go into a closet and pretend you don't know how much longer you're going to be stuck in there. And just take yourself, just play a trick with your brain. I'm, I'm stuck in this closet and I'm at the mercy of, or have somebody play the game with you and see how quickly it takes you to lose your mind. And we treat solitary confinement in this country as though it's a way to protect prisoners and it's well, torture. And David, at, at San Quentin, <clears throat> the rules are that the most you can be in solitary is 30, maybe 60 days. There's an old humble pie song, uh, 30 days in the hole. But the, the Guantanamo in California. Well, hang, it, on for one, been, hold, hold, hang on for one second. Yeah. Could you last an hour in solitary confinement? If I knew it was only an hour, Yes. I don't, I could not. We are social animals. You don't yeah. realize how, how dependent we are on others until you're isolated. The mm -hmm. idea of no other country, isn't this, isn't, isn't solitary considered a human rights violation by yes. the UN? Mm -hmm. So the, the lowest of the low in the dungeons of California is the supermax prison up north of Eureka near Crescent city. And that's where they have the uh, notorious shoe, the security housing unit, which are these pods of uh, maybe a dozen uh, uh, solitary cells. And in the center at the core is where the guards watch them. And it's also where there's a small exercise area. It's the size of a, a single car garage. And there were men who were sentenced to solitary at the shoe for up to 20 years without a break. And this was done because they refused to make up shit about other prisoners and snitch on them. And it was typically because they wouldn't say that this dude over here is a member of a certain gang. And 
Sometimes it's because the retaliation from the gang was worse than solitary. Sometimes it was like the guys at Gitmo. They didn't have that information. And making it up would make things even worse for them. And so uh, I give credit. The Center for Constitutional Rights, based in New York, joined uh, advocates in California And they forced a major change when Jerry Brown was governor. And I believe it's now a maximum of of 30 days that you can be held in solitary. And they have limited the offenses that get people thrown in the lockup. But even 30 days, I mean, any solitary confinement is torture. Well, I agree with that. But again, the resiliency of people, let, let me. You, see, you know what you sound like? You of all people, you remind me, I love you and I'm teasing you. You remind me of the woman who stood up at George Bush's town hall when he was running for reelection and said she had four jobs. And he said, isn't she great? Isn't that great? She has four <laughs> jobs. Well, my friend Dennis Jones was wrongfully convicted. He was sentenced to seven to life. And I got involved trying to help him win parole when he was uh, down at the 18-year mark. And it took us five years to get Dennis parole. And uh, it is my greatest personal achievement. Uh, I pulled in every contact, every favor. I got B.B. King to perform a benefit concert to raise money to pay the lawyers. And uh, so at that 18 year mark, I said to Dennis, you know, you were sentenced to an indeterminate length of time, seven to life. You have made 15 trips to the parole board and been turned down every time. And he he said, look, just give me a date. He said, I don't care if it's 10 years from now. Give me a date. And his phrase was, I can start whacking away at it. And it is the indeterminate sentence, the being in solitary and not knowing when the door would open and you would be left at, let out. That is the most brutal thing we can do to break a fellow human being. We all deserve, all of us, every American deserves a night in jail. Every American should experience a night in jail. And then you can decide whatever you want. Come out after one, spend one night in jail, and then you can think whatever you want. Well, you never thought you'd be a member of a club with Paul Pelosi. I think Paul Pelosi was treated, well, first of all, I can't comment, but Paul Pelosi was drunk and crashed his car into another car endangering the life of somebody and killed his older brother by driving no, not in this not in this episode nobody died no 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 he in, when he was a teenager oh, he, i don't know that story yeah nancy pelosi's husband killed his older brother because he was driving carelessly in his late teens one would think one would think after such an experience, after killing your older brother, you would get behind uh, a wheel of a car more judiciously, 
wouldn't mm-hmm. you think? Yeah. No, I, I did not know that story. Hmm. So I, I apologize for being flip about that. I was referring to his most recent case uh, in the Napa Valley, where he did, he, he was in a collision. We don't have any details on who caused it. And so far, we don't have a, a blood alcohol report. If you're drunk and you crash a car, isn't that different from just driving drunk? I would guess that you would be more culpable for causing the accident if it can't easily be determined. But I don't know. Okay. Well, speaking of the Pelosi family, let me give you some interesting... Let's play a game. Who do you think is the least popular person in Washington? Before that we, would be Nancy. You would think, right? Yeah. You're close. It's Mitch McConnell. <laughs> but you're close. Uh, I would need to see the, uh, the breakdown of the respondents to that poll. <laughs> right. It, it's, it's real clear uh, politics. They do the average of uh, approval ratings. How bad Ooh. is Howie Klein was on earlier and he was saying... It may not be as bad as we think it's going to be in the Senate. He says the January 6th hearings might be moving the needle for the Democrats, surprisingly. What are your thoughts? I haven't seen any indication that people who need to be persuaded by the January 6th hearings are even paying attention. And these people are so... um, (laughs) They, they really are brainwashed by Trump. And so when he denies it all and, you know, says that it's a witch hunt, it's total projection. He is blaming the Democrats for the crimes that he has committed. He is trying to paint the Democrats as election riggers and uh, manipulators. When we've got this incredible evidence, like the tape of the phone call to Georgia on January 3rd. Right. Unbelievable that they just don't Um, lock them up for that. Yeah. So uh, let me just offer the snapshot here that uh, tomorrow the Supreme Court is likely to release one of its very controversial decisions. Either, uh, and I'm not going to try to predict the extent of these, but we know that they're going to nibble away at Roe versus Wade if not overturn it outright and just leave it to the states. The other big controversy is the New York uh, concealed weapons law. And uh, take a look back at the Citizens United case, which was a very narrow case about uh, disclosure of the people who paid for uh, a black documentary about Hillary Clinton. When the Supreme Court got that case, it turned into corporate personhood. The issue was not before the court. They were fishing for it. Say again? They were fishing for a case that would give... They are are activist judges. We've always been told to be afraid. Conservatives have told us, be afraid of liberal activist judges. But they are activists who will take a case and rewrite it, reshape it, 
to fashion the result that they want. And so the, the, the gun decision that's going to come down, I believe, is going to legalize concealed carry nationwide. I think it's going to uh, attempt to preclude uh, efforts to even put a 21 uh, age requirement on people purchasing semi-automatic weapons. Uh, I think that it will uh, avoid, you know, try to limit, if not uh, uh, delete, any ability to uh, require training, registration, or anything else. It's going to be this originalist concoction based on what the people who wrote the Constitution knew about guns back in 1776. And... How can so, you expect how can you expect these people to interpret the second amendment when they can't even interpret the Heller decision? Yes. Well, and the Democrats just went soft on the Heller decision. And I, I realize it's very difficult to uh, you know, pass a constitutional amendment. But you know, I heard Obama uh within months after the Heller decision, just laying down and accepting it. And so this, this has a long history of democratic passivity. And if the court does, as, as I'm expecting, uh, make this decision on gun rights, uh, it, it's going to be uh, an incredible shooting gallery from coast to coast. And David, I, I learned this earlier today. Uh, I was watching CNN while I had a little lunch. And the court is planning to release these controversial decisions on the internet. There will not be a typical gathering at the court where all the justices are there and they announce the decision and who voted how and they read the majority opinion, and they read the dissenting opinions. They're not going to do that. And so they are becoming even more remote. They're blaming, of course, the, the guy who flew out and called the cops, said, don't, don't let me shoot Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, and, you know, they, they've... Uh, so now we have to pay... Congress had to pass legislation to protect our Supreme Court justices from getting shot. Seems more efficient to just overturn the Heller decision. If well, they if they if I'd they want protection, it. I'd be all over that, David. They're so worried about their protection. We have to pay for the Supreme Court's protection from getting shot. But as for us, it's. But they are increasingly remote and less accountable. And this is a recipe for uh, civil war, revolution, something along those lines. And the Democrats are hoping that these rulings are just bad enough that we avoid bloodshed, but that it causes Democrats to uh, show up and vote in November. And I, I'm not optimistic about that. I'd love to be proven wrong. I'd love to see where, uh, you know, political leaders on the non-right uh, get their shit together 
and develop messaging and compelling candidates. But, you know, it's already baked into the cake. The Democrats allowed APAC to take progressives out during the primaries. We only have moderates, including Second Amendment moderates, running for Democratic seats this fall. The party faithful is stuck with trying to, you know, put some defense around the the, the one-seat majority in the Senate with, you know, re-electing people like uh, uh, the astronaut, Mark, uh, searching Kelly? for his last name. Kelly. Yeah. Yes, Kelly from Arizona. And, you know, I understand the tightrope he has to walk. But he has exhibited moments of mansionism, of cynicism, <laughs> where he recognizes that he has a pivotal vote on certain issues, and he uses it to move things to the right, not to the left. But we can't afford to, to lose Mark Kelly or Maggie Hassan or uh, uh, Cortez in Nevada, who's running against the grandson of Paul Laxalt, one of Reagan's cronies. And Adam Laxalt is full MAGA. And so I think that the Democrats need to get real and real fast. And Joe Biden mouthed the words last week that the oil companies are gouging American consumers but there was no follow-up, and therefore I am going to, right, right, <laughs> you know, investigate them, order the Justice Department to claw back their uh, egregious profits. Uh, there is talk, but the Biden White House is moving slowly about using the presidential under uh, power under the uh, uh, Defense Production Act to force the oil companies to increase refinery output. Because they are using every lever at their disposal to gouge us and gouge us deeply. We also need to look at the influence on inflation of real estate. It's been completely off the radar. But people have been, uh, and this is not, it's, it's bad in California, but this happened all across the country last year. Where people were buying houses in a frenzy. Uh, paying 25% premiums. That is inflation. <laughs> and it also has the effect of locking out the people who had just saved enough money for a down payment before interest rates went up. And so we are in a, de a deep downward spiral. And the Democrats, you know, aren't even using what's available to them to try to make life a little better. And to see Joe Biden, who, you know, had forceful comments about the murder of Khashoggi, who, by the way, was not a Washington Post columnist. He was a contributor. He was an opinion writer who was just trying to dance between his uh, American instincts and his Saudi uh, uh, ethnicity and legacy. Uh, at, at any rate, Biden made these strong comments, you know, that uh, you, you know, kind of like Trump, well, he's not going to be my friend. And so now he's going to go to Saudi Arabia. And in 
video conferences with MBS, MBS has not agreed to increase production. So how much will Biden have to grovel to get Saudi Arabia to open the spigot further, which would presumably lower prices, except the oil companies still have ways of uh, extracting egregious profits even when the spot market price goes down. There's, there's a meme on Facebook that's being widely circulated that in March of this year, uh, when oil was well under $100 a barrel, uh, we had uh, lower prices. And we know that the crude that they've been processing since the war in Ukraine started was already in their tanks or in their tanker ships. And they just jack up the price. And, and so this ineffectiveness by both the White House and the Democrats on the Hill, and their idea that they can, uh, you know, reclaim Trump voters through these wimpy uh, little moves that they make and by ratcheting up rhetoric that doesn't match policy. It's 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 not voting well, David. No. Not the right president for this time. No, I, he's not. We have to wrap it up. Uh, it's good to see you. I was saying to Howie Klein, I knew that Biden was going to be a disappointment, but I figured he was smart enough to put some numbers on the board that he could get some incrementalist jabber jockey passed. Something mm-hmm. just to make it look, some, some cosmetic legislation. Well, they can't even get this uh, useless red flag uh, legislation, which is only a resolution with some money. All right. So it says, Washington will reward states that pass a red flag law. But to my knowledge, there are no details to what it has to contain, how it has to work, and whether it would be effective. So it's total window dressing, and it is because they are desperate to just do something, anything. And somehow they think that's going to pacify the Democrats who in Los Angeles with a contested mayor's race only participated at a rate of 25 to 28%. And so the Democrats have checked out, Democratic voters have checked out on the Democratic Party, and the party does not seem to be getting the message. In his address, that candlelit address after the shooting in Uvalde, he said, we have to ban assault weapons. But if we can't do that, at least let's agree to raise the age to which you can buy them. That's his big speech, his primetime speech. We have to get rid of assault weapons. But if we can't, well, boy, nothing inspires Americans more than, but if we can't do this, I have, an, uh, I have plan B. He's a, yeah. disgra- he's a disgrace. He really is, he is. a disgrace. Yeah. I'm rooting for him, but he's a disgrace. Not as bad as Trump, 
but may end up doing more damage to this country than Trump. I'm afraid you're right, because the the unchecked inflation is increasing the poverty level at a time when things were actually starting to improve a little bit. And, you know, the Democrats take credit for uh, lifting X million children out of poverty, and they were able to do it for six months. <laughs> they don't talk about those children have been returned to where they were before those payments started. Yeah. He was sold to us as the great communicator, that, that he'll feel our pain, he'll, he'll message properly. He can't, even, he can't even be a fraud. He can't even be a faker. Can't even do that right. He is a disgrace. Joe Biden is a disgrace. Peter B. Collins is not. Go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of the man's interviews and conversations. Unfortunately, we didn't have time to talk about Julian Assange, uh, who will be coming to America, unfortunately. Well, there are a couple more appeal possibilities, yeah. but they're very slim. And yes, he will. And it's that that's an even greater disgrace. And let me just amend your litany that, you know, Biden has been disgraceful on Assange, on Venezuela, now on Saudi Arabia. Uh, there is going to be a new government in Israel, but he will go there and uh, support the most extreme elements in Israeli politics. And the list goes on and on. And uh, it's very hard to watch. So let me say thank you and- uh, Plug adieu. Rahima. And Adnan, Plug thanks Rahima. for switching today, I appreciate it. Plug no Rahima. Rahima.org. Well, I, I wanna ask Adnan a quick question about Rahima. Um, is your parents' foundation located in Silicon Valley uh, starting to receive any Afghan refugees from the exit that was bungled last August? Uh, it is, yes, indeed, located in uh, the South Bay of the Bay Area. And, of course, the East Bay and South Bay are uh, home to uh, one of the largest uh, Afghan exile diaspora communities um, in the world, really. And um, they have, in fact, actually started receiving um, a few people who have come recently in the last several months um, uh, from Afghanistan uh, post pullout or soon after or around that around that time. So there's been a, a new wave. I wouldn't well, I wouldn't quite call it a wave the way, you know, the 1980s were uh, a big wave. Uh, but there have been noticeably new Afghan refugees arriving to to the area because there was already an established Afghan community. So they have networks and connections. And so many uh, people who have, you know, come as refugees are settling in 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 the South Bay and have made, you know, uh, contact with, with Rahima Foundation. So do support Rahima.org. Um, you can go make a donation there and you can help uh, people who are arriving in dire need uh, from uh, the disasters that have been perpetrated uh, by uh, 20 uh, years of U.S. war and um 
even before that, by a couple of decades of um, disorder, uh, partly caused by the U.S. waging a proxy war through the Afghans against the Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, so that country has been devastated. Um, millions of people have been made refugees over the course of those 40 years. Um, and you can help out at least a few of them resettle and get themselves back on their feet uh, in the South Bay. And Adnan, I, I'm reluctant to get into a kind of comparative misery uh, analysis, but it's fair to say that uh, Ukrainians are getting, uh, you know, much broader support from many more nations than those who were uh, uh, made refugees due to our occupation of Afghanistan. Unfortunately, that is the case, that there's often less attention to the plight of people who are uh, victims of U.S. Uh, war and aggression and occupation. Um, but I think, I think uh, in many ways you have to acknowledge, or we should all acknowledge, that we have a much greater responsibility towards uh, those people, which isn't to say that we shouldn't open up our you know, homes and countries to uh, anybody who's fleeing war um, and um, all of the cataclysms around the world. Uh, But I would say that we do have a special responsibility uh, since uh, we are involved in a much more direct way. Um, But it is true that there hasn't been as much attention since the pullout uh, from Afghanistan to, uh, you know, the unfortunate plight of uh, so many waves of refugees who have come from Afghanistan. And of course, you know, 2014 was sort of the high point for these waves of, you might say, U.S. war inspired or caused refugees from Iraq, Afghanistan. And that has sort of fallen off of the radar uh, in people's consciousness as we deal with the ever-present news cycle dealing with um, the unfortunate uh, problems that Ukrainians are um, uh, experiencing as a result of the Russian invasion of their country. Um, uh, but I think we should spare a thought also for those that we are most directly responsible for because of our own military action. Fully agree. Thank you, Adnan. Take it away, David. Thank you, Professor Adnan. Who's saying th- and thank you, Peter B. Collins. Great talking with you. Go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of this man's interviews, his podcasts, and his radio shows. I am always stunned by uh, your what you know and what you remember. Professor Adnan Hussein is host of Guerrilla History, as well as the Mudgeless podcast. At the end of this interview conversation, I'll ask you who your guests are. I want to see if we can do this. These are the topics, and I think we can do this. I first want to ask you about the French parliamentary election results. Dr. Harriet Fraud touched on them. Then I want to touch on Joe Biden's visit to the Middle East and how that affects Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Israel. Then I want to see if we can tackle... Sweden joining NATO and how that relates to Charles, King of Sweden, uh, and Peter the Great, 
and Charles King of Sweden seeking asylum in Ottoman Moldova and what that has to do with NATO, I suspect. And I think we can do it on this show. It's an ambition. Uh, this is this is the show to do it. I think we can do it. So you're back from vac- vacation. You're revitalized. We can take it all. We on. can take it all. On. I, know, I know this audience can do this, that there is a link between Sweden joining NATO, Turkey not wanting Sweden to join NATO. And it's but let's start off easy and talk about the French parliamentary elections. <laughs> going to ease into okay this. yeah well i wish it was um clear but in fact actually the uh outcome of the recent second round of france's legislative elections may have plunged the country into a period of real uncertainty and instability politically whether there will be a governing coalition who might comprise that uh Um, how much Macron, who easily won the most recent presidential elections and therefore was projected and expected to, you know, saunter to a parliamentary majority and a mandate uh, to put through some of the so-called reforms that are top of his legislative policy agenda, like, you know, kind of workfare or training for welfare and reducing the, or rather extending the age of retirement and other other sorts of so-called reforms that would help dismantle the welfare state to the extent that it has survived in France. Now he's going to have trouble getting through that agenda because two major developments took place. Um, Let's start with the positive, which is that um, the uh, left sort of union of parties um, under the leadership of uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who we had discussed was forging a kind of coalition to run candidates, not in opposition to one another in various districts, but to figure out who would be um, from the socialists, the communists, the Greens, and his own France unbowed uh, party, who would be the candidates so that they wouldn't divide the left vote. And it seems to have worked fairly well in making um, his coalition, which is called uh, the, you know, um, new uh, union, I guess, new, new popular ecological and social union um, uh, to be the largest grouping uh, in opposition with 131 MPs. Now, there are 22 other uh, sort of uh, parliamentary deputies from other scattered left parties that didn't quite join. They were independent ones, which but they might be allies in this, which gives about 153 uh, seats to the left, which had been declared dead ever since Francois Hollande uh, terribly lost, you know, uh, the elections, I think was, what was it? 2017, uh, 2016. Anyway, it was utter collapse. Of, he was of the, the left. socialist. So he was the socialist party, um, uh, you know, leader. So this is important development. However, there are a lot of question marks about this. Um, uh, one, uh, Mélenchon was hoping that they would get a majority uh, for the left and therefore be able to uh, have him be the prime minister and that is head of 
the actual government, whereas the president is head of state and has other sorts of powers, but it would have been um, uh, a cohabitation, as the French call it, when you had different parties uh, with different agendas inhabiting these two principal executive positions. He didn't achieve that. So that's really unfortunate for Mélenchon's project. And it puts a lot of strain because of the lack of a, you know, success to be able to form government, puts a lot of strain on this coalition that was already something of a motley uh, coordinated coordinated coalition. And already um, there are signs that there will be divisions and there are a whole range of policy divisions, but there might be political divisions now, because if you have 15 seats in the French parliament, you're a parliamentary group, which gives your party status, uh, the ability to, you know, have uh, call hearings and um, you get certain kind of financing. You have rights to speak and representation on committees and so on. And the question is, will they remain under this union as a united opposition force and party? Or will they all form their own parliamentary groups around their parties? And all of those four parties did, except for the communists, have managed um at this point, to have 15 of their own uh, party members elected. So that's already going to be a problem. Mélenchon, before he consulted with anyone uh, from among his coalition, announced uh, today that he hoped that that's what would happen, is that they would remain a united opposition bloc. And um, I think partly because he didn't consult with anybody before he proposed this, uh, there are signs that some of these other uh, parties plan to form their own legislative party blocks, and we'll see whether they can coordinate in an integrated way. But the reason why that's important that they do is because of the second major outcome of this election that is a stunning rise of Le Pen's far right from, you know, below 15 uh, uh, in the previous parliament to now having about 90. Right. 90, uh, you know, seats in, in the House, which makes them really the third largest block. But it's much more united as a block than is, um, you know, the, the leftist union of parties. And so it, it's important for Mélenchon that uh, they actually maintain their union in Parliament because otherwise they might not be the actual official opposition, which gives it a certain kind of status um, and political power to block things. Um, if, if they don't coordinate, then, you know, it's very possible that Le Pen will be, you know, uh, you know, the opposition leader officially in, in Parliament. So that's an important So point, I'm looking at the numbers, if you don't mind, yeah. uh, and I posted... Yeah, I looked at it. So I see the noops. Mel, that would be mm-hmm. Mélenchon's coalition. They have 131 Correct. seats. Other That's left right. parties have 22 seats. And then Macron's party has 245 seats. Yes, it is the largest uh, party. So, But it doesn't have enough to form government uh, on its own because it didn't get a majority. It needed about 40. 40 more seats in order to to have a majority. So but so when you look at is, when you look at the the national rally that that's Le Pen's Yes, that's Le Pen's, right? They have 89 seats. As scary as Le Pen is, she has fascist fascistic 
roots and tendencies, France is not tilting towards fascism. I mean, Macron is neoliberal, uh, but he's not a fascist. And then the noops are anything but. So France is not in any danger of tipping into... Well, I mean, uh, this is a good question. I mean, we can't read completely the tea leaf, but what we understand is that the reason why Macron uh, decisively won in the last, in the second round... I mean, he was winning in the first round, but he didn't have a majority outright. But then um, he had a very strong majority in the second round, defeating Le Pen. Now, Le Pen was only about 460,000 votes ahead of Mélenchon to make it into that second round. But when it became a choice between Macron and Le Pen, the country overwhelmingly went for Macron uh, to keep the far right out of you know the Elysee Palace, so you're right that they didn't want to go, um, you know, tip to the far to the far right. But you know, in this election, once you know it was clear Le Pen would not be, you know, the president, then we it clear, clearly it was an anti-Macron. I mean, it was an anti-Le Pen vote that coalesced around Macron in the presidential elections. But here, the country is much more divided, um, and you have about like you know. 25, 30 percent, you know, for the left union, you have a, you know, centrist, that's actually really a center right, uh, you know, uh, party that is, you know, the dominant and majority, I mean, it's the largest, but not a majority. And you have a real breakthrough. This is the first time really almost ever uh, that the far right um, has had the ability to form a parliamentary group of more than 15, uh, you know, uh, seats in, in the House. And to have 90 is pretty substantial. You know, it's much more than the conservative party, which rebounded a bit and might, you know, join Macron in a governing coalition since he's essentially center right himself. They do have he he might try and split off the the conservative party, the Republicans, (laughs) helpfully. They're called the Republicans, too. you know, are kind of split between a kind of harder right that is anti-Europe and a more kind of corporate, uh, liberal, uh, pro-business right that is pro-Europe. And we might see that many of those uh, deputies uh, will move over and perhaps join the governing coalition. It'll be interesting to see whether Macron can convince them to help him form a coalition government or if France is going to be uh, governed by on a case by case, you know, um, bill by bill basis where there will be votes. And if, you know, something will pass, if it can recruit enough from kind of the Socialist Party or the center right Republican Party to join Macron. Um, but what m- many observers think will happen is that Mélenchon. Uh, will maintain an oppositional disruptive stance to try and stop that kind of an agenda of raising the, you know, uh, retirement age and gutting the welfare state and support for poor people and and so on. Um, And as a result, um, there might be stasis and paralysis, something that we in the U.S. are kind of, you know, very familiar with, which has not been common for France to have parliament unable to act because it's so divided and fragmented in these ways. And that as a result, perhaps this whole situation will only last for a few months or a year before Macron, who has the power as the president to call new elections and can do so at any time. Well, so let, that's, let, I think, the situation. 
Fantastic. Let's see if we can do this. Let's, I'm going to put a map. I always find looking at a map is a great way to explain world history. So this is a bad map. Uh, but Moldova is over here. Sweden is all the way up here, right? What does that have to do with Turkey, which is all the way down here, and Russia, which is all the way up here? How is that related to Sweden joining NATO? Why would there be you know, centuries-old resentments between Turkey? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm not going to claim that these are completely centuries old and that uh, the Ottomans, uh, the current modern-day Turks, are harboring, um, you know, grudges against the Swedes from uh, the early 18th century, uh, exactly. Um, though I think it is an interesting story, and um, one can see, you know, the famous Swedish meatballs are actually Ottoman meatballs uh, and At other Ikea? aspects of culture. Excuse me? What, what, at Ikea? What do I eat at Ikea? Oh, I, oh yeah, you probably have some meatballs, you know, Swedish uh, meatballs. But that's Turkish yeah. food, you're and, saying. Well, yeah, they came from Turkey, yeah. And there's, the story here is that, um, well, firstly, the thing to do is to notice, yes, these are, you know, disparate places on today's map. They're separated by a lot of geography. But, of course, the political map, of Europe was very different in the 18th century than it is today. Um, and what we're dealing with during this period, particularly in the east, uh, eastern part of Europe, northern and eastern and southeastern part of Europe, uh, is the era of empires. So people are familiar, of course, with the Russian Empire. And the period that I'm interested in telling us a little bit about is the era of Peter the Great. Of course, the reason why we're thinking about him is because he's been invoked by Putin uh, himself recently in the context of talking about in his uh, uh, one of his more recent speeches in talking about uh, reaction to Sweden and Finland uh, hopes to join NATO, uh, he's invoked Peter the Great, who uh, you know was involved in a major war of expansion against Finland and Sweden um, uh, because the Swedish at the time had an empire that was expanding, you know, throughout Scandinavia and in parts of Northern Europe. And so there was a major conflict uh, between Sweden and the Russian Empire. And during this time, the one of the major third uh, forces uh, was the Ottoman Empire that uh, governed territories in what is today the Balkans, um, uh, Bulgaria, uh, you know, the northern uh, shore of the Black Sea. Uh, so they had a foothold in Crimea, you know. Um, and so there were geopolitical rivalries between the, um, you know, czarist Russian Empire and the Ottomans. And um, so just so I, I'm looking period, at a map here. OK. Yeah. Moving south to north, I see Turkey, which ostensibly was the Ottoman Empire. At well, see, that's the whole point is that Turkey was part of the Ottoman Empire, but the today's political <clears throat> geography of nation states bears somewhat 
little resemblance to what the political map looked like in the 18th century. So it would have included so Bulgaria, Romania, Moldova, Greece. Greece. Yes, that's right. Or but parts Serb- of what of, of Moldova, parts of what are today Ukraine, uh, parts of what are today Russia, in fact. Um, and um, so just looking, going, know, as a result, going south to north, the Ottoman Empire in the 1700s, I would assume, uh, did not include Hungary. Is that correct? Well, part of Hungary, I mean, uh, up until the Battle of Mohach. Um, so in the, in the 18th century, no, but in previous periods, uh, you know, parts of Hungary were. Um, so in the 16th century, under Suleiman the Magnificent, there was maybe the, you know, apogee of the territorial extent of the, of the Ottoman Empire. And that's famously when they were at the gates of Vienna. And so parts of, of Hungary uh, were actually uh, under the Ottoman Empire. But in the 18th century, you're right. Yes, uh, that is separate. And it's part of this Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire. Right. Or and then, so Roman going Empire. up. There's Romania, which I'm going to assume was protected by Austria-Hungary, but probably fell. Yes, yes. But Moldova fell under Ottoman rule? Uh, Yes, at least part of it did, yes. So the more the coastal part, yeah. And did they make it, and Moldova is up against Ukraine, did the Ottoman Empire make it into parts of Ukraine? I think you said they did. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes, indeed. All, you know, Crimea. Uh, right. Did they uh, make it into Belarus going further north? No, that was too far north. They never extended quite that far. No. Okay. And we're only talking about the coastal area, really, of of, of Ukraine. And, uh, you know, Crimea, of course, is, is really very coastal. It's on, on the coast of the Black Sea. And then heading... Uh, he- heading North to south, you have Sweden and Russia, and you're saying Peter the Great is spreading down towards the Ottomans. Yeah, uh, well, and also northward towards, uh, you know, what is today Finland and, and Sweden. And, and it's, you know, in fact, in 1709, you know, the uh, Swedish Empire uh was defeated by Peter the Great's Russians at the Battle of Poltava, which is now in Ukraine. So you can see that that whole region was actually being contested by an empire centered around and based on, you know, Swedish noble houses uh, versus, um, you know, the Russian the Russian Empire. Wait, wait a second. Um, this is really interesting. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. You're saying Sweden fought the Russians in Ukraine. That's right. Amazing. That's right. Amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, these, these areas and territories were very interconnected, you know, and they were contested. These are sort of border zones between um, areas and spheres of control and interest um, in these imperial formations. So, so, Uh, so, so as, so as I, as you're, I'm looking at the notes here, you have Charles, the King of Sweden, I never knew that there was a Charles King of Sweden who had imperial designs that stretched. <laughs> That's right. That stretched as far south as Ukraine. How, how? What was he? What did he want? How much did he want? 
Well, um, what do all of these uh, imperial rulers want is to enlarge the extent of their domains as far as possible and to be the dominant power in their region. So even if they don't completely politically control and incorporate territory of others, they want to exert influence in bordering areas so that, you know, their interests of trade and um, security are, are, are protected. So, um, you know, Charles the Twelfth uh, was engaged in, uh, you know, a number of wars uh, during this period after he lost this very fateful battle to Peter the Great in 1709. He petitioned the Ottomans for safe, uh, you know, uh, you know, asylum. He said he wanted to come for eight days, you know, just to regroup uh, and seek safety in, you know, Ottoman. Moldova um, before then, you know, uh, marshalling forces to either, you know, return to Sweden or uh, continue his uh, his battle and try and roll back Peter the Great's uh, victory against his armies. But as it turned out, he ended up, and so the Ottomans accepted uh, accepted him, set him up in a palace there, uh, put him on a big sort of retainer, hosted him, uh, and he was a terrible house guest. He wouldn't go away. He ended you know what up they staying. say in Sweden, they say guests are like surstroming. The fermented herring after eight days, they start to smell. Really start to smell, yeah. <laughs> well, it turned out, you know, instead of eight days, he ended up staying for five years, okay, <laughs> um, and was insisting that he wouldn't go when the Ottomans um, told him he needed to because, of course, this created diplomatic problems right. with the Russian Empire. Um, and at a certain point, it wasn't uh, possible to, uh, you know, I mean, the Ottomans ended up also getting embroiled. You know, they also had rivalries with the Russian Empire. Probably conflict would have happened sooner or later anyway, but it became, um, you know, a source of conflict with the Russians and embroiled the Ottomans in, you know, their own uh, military conflict with the Russian Empire during this period. And um, so I just was thinking about this uh, story, you know, because uh, one, it shows that the area uh, that we think of as very separate culturally, that the Ottomans were really part of the concert of Europe, or at least these kind of imperial formations in the eastern part of Europe that had diplomatic relations with one another, had geopolitical conflicts, uh, territorial uh, conflicts, and that much of the map uh, that we think of today based around nation states didn't make sense as recently as the 19th century, really, uh, in, in this in this region. Uh, And secondly, um, you know, uh, I thought fancifully it might be, you know, sort of funny to think of, um, you know, contemporary Turkey's problems with uh, Sweden joining uh, the uh, joining NATO, you know, stemming from um, the terrible Swedish uh, house guest in the Ottoman Empire and the resentment that it ended up. Uh, they ended up having to expel him by sending an army to to this uh, castle uh, there. And finally, he relented. Um, uh, they had to send the Janissaries, the elite you know, Ottoman troops, backed by uh, locals from the city of Bender in, in Moldova, uh, to try and force uh, Charles uh, to actually go back uh, to Sweden. I guess he was having a great time in Ottoman what was, and Peter was no longer in Sweden? I mean, what was, 
Was it occupied? Uh, uh, well, well, I mean, by 1719, this uh, empire really collapses and uh, much of the territory was absorbed, at least for a time, under Peter, Peter the Great. Um, um, you know, I mean, of course, there are other vicissitudes later in the 19th century, you know, uh, where, um, you know, the, the Russian Empire contracts um, with rebellions and um, wars and, of course, Napoleon's wars, you know, in the early 19th century don't help. And so, you know, we have a gradual weakening over the course of the 19th century of the Russian of the Russian Empire. Interesting. Very interesting. So Sweden is going to join NATO, correct? And uh, well, they, that certainly seems to be the plan. However, Turkey is presenting a problem and um, they wanted this to be resolved very quickly and thought that they could mollify the Turks very easily um, and press them to agree. That hasn't happened yet. And in fact, Turkey is saying that at the next upcoming NATO summit, which is when they had planned to have this all be resolved, take a vote and and have Sweden and Finland join, Turkey is saying that's far too soon to consider uh, their request uh, and the demands that they have been making um, you know, relate to uh, sheltering, according to them, of uh, terrorists, as they're called, uh, uh, who are part of the PKK, an organization that was a Kurdish uh, leftist Marxist right. uh, resistance group. And that these are declared, you know, PKK has been declared by the U.S., by many other European countries, uh, and of course, Turkey as a terrorist organization. Um, and so they're using that to say that it, how can it be appropriate for a NATO member to be sheltering um, terrorists that NATO and Turkey and the U.S. all agree are terrorists um, to join a security pact when they will not cooperate and extradite these figures to Turkey. So this is a security question that Turkey is raising as um, a barrier to uh, Finland and Sweden joining NATO. And so far, there hasn't been uh, a clear resolution for this. What it has accomplished is delaying um, what had been intended to be a very quick entry and approval of these two countries. So the analogy, the historical analogy is Turkey, the which was once the Ottoman Empire, doesn't want Sweden to provide asylum to Kurdish separatists. <laughs> right. And back in the 1700s, uh, Russia didn't want Moldova, which was the Ottoman Empire, providing asylum to the king of Sweden. So it's almost similar. Yeah, or at least there's a little bit of an analogy of how right. the diplomatic game pits people in these uh, different right. circumstances. Interesting. Yes. That's yes. really interesting. Yeah. Very good. Very interesting. Uh, let's tackle one more difficult one. These are difficult. Can, can, do you have five more minutes? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there, the... Muslims in India are demonstrating against the Modi government. What does that have to do 
with the lost Persian Turkic history of India in five <laughs> in five minutes or less. <laughs> yeah, we'll cover about three thousand years here. Uh, well, I guess my main point here is that this has been very much in the news. I've talked about it fairly recently about the condition of Muslims in India under the BJP or Hindu nationalist government, uh, the levels of Islamophobia, suppression of, of political rights, and also. Um, you know, these kind of religio-political identities uh, being pitted against one another um, as part of the, I think, horrors, frankly, of nationalism, um, and especially when they're bound and tied with religious identity. So we have religious and political nationalism, where a multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multilinguistic polity like India um, is being... Uh, uh, governed by a ruling party that has the nationalist ideology that links Hinduism and Hindu identity with Indian identity and regards those who are of a different religion. Um, and often, as a result, they are also characterized as um, of a different kind of non-Indian ethnicity um, as foreigners. Uh, and they look at their history, in fact, the period of history before the British. They look at the British as only uh, a later colonial and occupying power and regard the Mughals and previous dynasties that rule different parts of India. Uh, most of them were Turkic uh, peoples um, that had a Persian culture in their courts um, as foreign occupiers. And therefore, they try and write them out of their history in a way that makes it impossible or characterize them as the, their descendants, or at least the people that they associate with them, that is Muslims today in India, as fundamentally not actually really Indians who don't deserve the same equal rights of citizenship under this nationalist ideology and essentially as foreigners who don't belong uh, and aren't really true Indians and citizens. And this is, of course, all exacerbated by the fact that during decolonization, the British partitioned India uh, in order to create uh, separate countries of India and of Pakistan, which had an East and a West Pakistan as a homeland for Muslims. In other words, Muslim majority parts of the Indian subcontinent that were, you know, kind of cut off and separated from the rest of India, uh, which uh, was a kind of its own Muslim nationalist statist ideology that only authorized the idea that, well, Muslims belong in Pakistan or Bangladesh and don't belong in India. So um, I think that there's a very, there was a very interesting essay in an article in the Middle East Eye, a site that I, I think is a good one uh, for people who are interested in reading up more on uh, contemporary politics and culture and history of the Middle East. Uh, that was about the lost Persian history um, and the way in which we think of India as separate from you know, Persia and the Middle East. But in uh, previous eras of history, there has been a long couple of thousand years of historic interchange and close relationship between uh, Persia and the Indian subcontinent. Um, and well, I'm looking at especially because, you know, ge yeah. geography is destiny. And 
when I think of Persia, I think of modern day Iran. Is that a fair? This is again, the tragedy of uh, a short historical duration and the political geography of this modern era of nation states is that we identify just as you said, Persia is essentially Iran. Now that might've been heartlands of the Persian uh, empires. So what, um, what, but it, what, where it, would it, it, where would it have been? Well, firstly, the capital of say the Sasanian empire, which is the first, uh, the last pre-Islamic, um, uh, you know, Persian empire that fought against the Byzantines and were great rivals uh, for the middle, for control of the middle East between the Eastern Roman Byzantine empire and this Persian Sasanian empire. Its capital was in today's Iraq not so far from Baghdad. Okay, that, that makes sense. That that I yeah. get. But its uh, territory stretched into what we think of as Central Asia. So if you look at Azerbaijan uh, on one side of the Caspian Sea and on the other side, if you go and see the major rivers, the Oxus and Jaxartes, they're also called the Sir Darya and Amu Darya, into what is today Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, uh, you know, this is part of the Persian world. Of course, Afghanistan, much of it, you know, part of it is, uh, you know, Pashtun tribes, but others um, in the major cities of Kabul and Herat are part of this historic uh, kind of geographical category of Khorasan um, that was Persian speaking and part of the Persian uh, world, you might say. And this also really does include parts of northern India, and particularly because when Turkic tribal groups from Central Asia migrated west and sort of created the Seljuk empires and later the Ottoman empires, they also went, you know, south into um, uh, the Indian subcontinent and established there uh, the first the Delhi Sultanates. Uh, and then later the Mughal uh, Empire, uh, when Babur, who was a, a grandson of Tamerlane, uh, who was the sort of great uh, 14th century uh, uh, conqueror that you reunited Central Asia, Persia, and Marlo, the Middle East together. During Shakespeare. That's right. Marlowe, right. That's right. Timur, the Lang, Timur Lang, or Tamerlane, in, as right. he's known uh, in his, uh, what is it, Xanadu, <laughs> I guess. Right. Yes. Um, so uh, he, Babur, uh, came and, and, and conquered parts of northern India and established the Mughal or the Mongol, right, because he's a Turco-Mongol descendant, um, the Mughal Empire. And so the fates and, and, and culture and politics of India and Central Asia and what we think of as Iran and Persia have been connected since the Achaemenid times. That is since the uh, groups that can, of Cyrus the Great, the Empire of Cyrus the Great, and the Persians who fought famously, you know, uh, in Herodotus's histories against, um, you know, against the Greeks from since that era, uh, the Achaemenids who had one of the largest world empires under Cyrus, um, you know, were very uh, closely connected with the Indian subcontinent since that time. Um, and so I guess the, my point here is just to say that no world region, no current nation state existed or developed in isolation from other world regions and from neighboring uh, peoples and that our histories as peoples are of multi-ethnic, of multi-religious, of multilinguistic contact and interchange 
all the way from ancient times to our era of globalization, and that we have to start thinking and understanding these more complex histories of contact and connection and of interchange if we were to imagine a kind of politics to get us around what I think is one of the great world problems that we're suffering, uh, you know, in modern history, which is the rise of nationalism um, that pits and breaks us up uh, politically. Um, when I don't think it's natural at all to think uh, the idea of the nation state we take as natural, that of course every people should have a state, that's not natural in terms of the long durée of, of history. Uh, that has seldom been the case. And in modern times, when it's been forged out of these multi-ethnic, cosmopolitan, multi-religious empires, whether it's the Russian, the Ottoman, the Austro-Hungarian, the Mohul, we are left with tragedy, division, and and war. This is like uh, uh, I think um, something that we're really suffering from. And history can sometimes be uh, an antidote when approached in the right way to thinking about our identities and our political affiliations in a new, in a new, uh, more complex way. I would love to do a show, an hour, just looking at maps with you. Oh yeah, maps are so fun. Just you going what we, over. What we need to do is we need to look at some historical maps as well. We start with the contemporary ones, and then you go back and you say, "Well, wait a minute, where is such right. and such country?" It's like, well, its boundaries are totally different. It would be an it, it would be unfair to the podcast listeners, so I would want to do it near the end of the show. But I think for our Zoom audience and the YouTube audience to put maps up and have you explain the the vast sweeps of history. Well, you know everything, so I'm going to ask you <laughs> this because I'm, I'm explain this to me. This is Rob Reiner's latest tweet. It has ten thousand, ten ten point four thousand retweets, fifty two thousand likes, and this is his latest tweet. It's simple: prosecute Trump or end democracy. Explain that to me, Professor Adnan Hussein, how that can get. I can't explain that. That's inexplicable. But I think what's behind it is also quite simple, which is that perhaps the Democrats and Democratic establishment are worried that uh, Trump will win the next election. So this is, you know, the only way to stop that is to try and um, have him be ineligible by prosecuting him. Um, I think, however, if they were to achieve that, they might get much worse uh, in the bargain. Um, you know, Who do you think is a bigger afraid. threat to democracy, Rob Reiner or Donald Trump? I think Rob Reiner. I think Rob, <laughs> these Hollywood self-aggrandizing liberals like Rob Reiner, who support Biden who are against Medicare for all, just busy tweeting against Trump while failing to provide for the 99%. I think Rob Reiner is a bigger threat to democracy than Donald Trump. Certainly social democracy and economic democracy. I mean, yeah. if we think of democracy only narrowly as a political system involving regular elections, uh, I think uh, we're missing uh, the real revolutionary force of democracy, um, which is uh, to equalize power relations in society, in our work 
places as well as in how we affiliate and relate to one another in political terms. So I wish Rob Reiner would uh, understand that in some ways we have not had a democracy um, for many generations, if we ever had one, um, because uh, we never democratized our society fully and we never democratized our economy Uh, And only very recently did we actually have, since the late 1960s, have anything even like a political democracy. And that was soon overtaken by corporate control, you know, already by the mid-late 70s. So um, I guess he came to political consciousness in a lucky period where he enjoyed a sense of having full inclusion for a brief period uh, of about a decade. Right. Remember the Dixie Chicks movie, Shut Up and Sing? Uh, Yeah, about um, what they were told when they uh, raised their voices against Bush's illegal war against Iraq. Yeah, I want to do a sequel about Rob Reiner and call it Shut Up and Shut Up Some More. (laughs) Catchy. (laughs) Shut Up and Shut Up Some More. Who's on? He doesn't he is losing it. He's the reason the Democrats lose. When he opens his mouth, people stop voting for Democrats. Uh, who was on the Mudgeless podcast and who was on Guerrilla History? Uh, well, we're actually going to have uh, very soon um, an upcoming episode on the Mudgeless with my former PhD student, uh, Muhammad Abdu, about a book he just published called a- Anarchism and Islam reflections and resonances and it's getting quite a bit of attention and so i'm going to be thrilled to have a chance to talk with him a little bit more about what that book is about so look forward to that coming up in probably a week or two weeks and spell mudgeless please spell mudgeless uh, mudgeless is m-a-j-l-i-s and you can find it on all the platforms fantastic and guerrilla history well guerrilla history uh has a recent episode um We talked with Marguerite Schiller, who's a German radical leftist who was involved uh, with the Red Army faction and wrote an autobiography about her experience there and then subsequently uh, in political exile in Cuba and Uruguay. Um, And uh, it was a very interesting conversation. Every once in a while, instead of a professional historian, we talked with somebody who was involved in making history or part of history during a certain era. And so it was a very interesting conversation uh, with Marguerite Schiller. And uh, you can find out about her uh, about her book, which is called Remembering the Armed Struggle, My Time with the Red Army Faction. And that's the latest episode of Guerrilla History. Thank you so much. Professor, Adnan, you. Ho- Professor Adnan Hussein is chairman of the Religion Department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And he has a very handsome son. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, thanks. And Welcome I'm back from embarrass- vacation. I'm gonna embarrass you uh, once you leave. I don't ask for much on this show. We're a simple podcast with some very simple people. Just simple people like Professor Adnan saying, just a simple guy. <laughs> We're going to go to rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org. If you want to thank me or Professor Hussein, or more importantly, yourself, 
go to rahima.org and support this important charity. Uh, We create a lot of refugees. America creates a lot of refugees. And uh, rahima.org is helping the refugees who come to the Bay Area in San Francisco. And I can't think of a more important cause, a more trustworthy cause than rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. It's vetted by Professor Adnan Hussein. Uh, it's his parents. How, how could that not be the most important charity you've heard about? Rahima.org support the refugees who are lucky enough to make it here to the United States. Well, Professor Mike Steinell is about to join us. You know, he talks a lot about this book called Saving Charlie Parker, but I don't think he's written it. I don't think it's ever going to be published. Oh, my God, it's out. I saw it. It looks great. They say you can't judge a book by its cover. I beg to dip. That looks fantastic. Saving Charlie Parker, a novel by Professor Mike Steinell. You did it. Tell me how we buy this book, sir. I checked today. It's on Dorrance Publishing, their bookstore, D-O-R-R-A-N-C-E. It's also on Amazon. They have it. It's up as of today. And I'm sure Barnes & Noble will have it. And you can order it from any any bookstore. Um, Mike Steinell, uh, Saving Charlie Parker. And uh, today I spent the whole day in the studio mixing how's my how's my volume am i too loud uh you sound great check one two one two i spent the whole day um mixing um stuff for the cd the cd is not going to be out for a while we're going to do a big launch first second week of august with book signings and uh maybe we can do it on the live on the david feldman show Whatever you anyway. want, sir. I, I'm, th- that, I'm thinking that we should probably do a Saturday night with you and Ethan, who also has a book out, maybe where people pay, they get a, well, well this is not the place to talk about it, but, you know, do a, a separately or whatever. Something. Okay. Well, yeah, people we, show uh, up and they well, get a every, book. Yeah, that's fine. But. Yeah, what do we need to talk about that? Yeah, we need to because yeah. because I have to figure out how I can make all the money off of it. There you go. That's there the you thing. go. Well, you know they got you know it's it takes a. I'm going to order a whole bunch of books for the book signings, and if people sh- if they want to if they for the physical signing, if they if they show up then they get in free, and they also get a an autograph for mm-hmm. the book. But anyway, yeah, what an exciting week I hear. I had a uh, an exciting week. Yes, I did. I didn't hear the whole the whole uh, news, so I didn't. I'm not clued in, and I've been it's I've been really uh, kind of preoccupied. My computer when I st- it had been off for two weeks. This computer that I used for this for the zooming, and uh, so I it, I couldn't get the email to come up and it just was a mess. It just started working about 15 minutes ago, but I, I did hear you talking about the rights you have, you know, once you've been arrested 
and and detained. And you you didn't talk about one of the most important rights. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but once if you've been detained and arrested, you have the right to play harmonica. <laughs> Very important prison instrument because yeah. it, it can be hidden. It can be hidden. Yeah. <laughs> but I think after you find out where it's been hidden, you really don't want to put your lips there. Uh, it's a personal thing, you know. It depends <laughs> on how you feel about that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, you have the right to, uh, you got a right to play the harmonica and play yeah. the blues. Yeah. I try, you know, I, I was going to write a little blues about going to D.C. and uh, it just... Your your show didn't run long enough for me to get. <laughs> yeah, maybe a free, maybe free triumph. I, I I really, I promised that I would not. I, I made a promise to myself. Not I've been told not to, and I until the, this is a criminal matter. So I, it's I. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes, so I you have, can't really talk about. Yeah, it. I mean I'm laughing, but I'm really scared to be honest with you. Hmm. So. Interesting. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, uh, you want me to send you one of these? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's <But> your key? <laughs> Be flatter. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Anyway. I, yeah. It's, it's a, it really is a beautiful instrument. You know, uh, invented by the Germans. Really? They, 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 would, they would play it like this. <laughs> and then somebody, you know, over here in America goes, no, no, it's got to be like. It's got to have some stink on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know, uh, Ray Charles, they wanted him to, after he had that big hit with, um, America, you know, uh, they, yeah. they, they came to him and they wanted him to do God bless America, God bless, you know, the, the Irving Berlin thing. He goes, ah, I don't think so. I can't put no stink on that. <laughs> and I hear it. I mean, you'd be hard to, America is great. That, that, that virgin is amazing. Right. But, uh, so hey, you want to talk a little bit about Charlie Parker? Yeah, a little bit. But going back to the stink on the harmonica, the Germans mm -hmm. couldn't stretch a note. They didn't. They, they it never. Nobody. It never occurred to anybody to to stretch. It would have to be Southern <clears throat> African Americans to, to. Well, it gets it gets all into the um, African aesthetic. You know the. Western European aesthetic is that you have 12 notes in the scale. I'm sorry. And in the, in the most common tonality, you have like, you know, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. And, uh, <clears throat> but in Africa, the, a pure tone and a, uh, uh, an exactly in t intonation is not the prized aesthetic, you know. Uh, as a matter of fact, they they will do things like um, have a guitar with they'll drape things over the strings so that it buzzes. 
You know, thumb pianos, those kalimbas, have uh, bottle caps nailed to them, so they buzz. Uh, even, even like the jazz players, you know, like Louis Armstrong's voice, that, <clears throat> that gravelly distortion in it, that's an African aesthetic. It's very personal. And right. so, like the, the, you know, like the, the most common note, which is, oh, I'm sorry. The third of the chord. I'm sorry, I'm screwing up. There it is. Their third would be somewhere in between there. And, and, and piano players, since they're locked into the white notes and black notes that they can't bend, they would do to get that distortion. You right. Know. And those are the blue notes. And it's interesting... The only notes that you can do that on the harmonica, there's only certain notes. You can only bend notes, unless you're really good, you can only bend notes when you are drawing on the harmonica. I'm blowing. I'm inhaling. Sucking. And, and those become... Those become the blue notes that we think of in the uh, blues scale. Thank you. There's three notes that you can bend. And, and those are, uh, we, we, we consider those blue notes and, and after the blues. Right, but um, anyway, so a note, I love the harmonica. A note is a vibration, and a, as I understand it, a note is also kind of like a chord that contains other notes within the note. Is that correct? Well, you have harmonics. <clears throat> you know, every so if every you, you talk pitch. about the African music having a buzz to it, a buzz would be a vibration that would have. It would be a chord, right? And Louis Armstrong's voice. Actually, Louis Armstrong's voice is actually um, like a, um, what do they call it? It's a uh, multiphonic. There's a low note in there. I'm going to wait. But there's also a high note in there. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a chord. He's singing a chord, right? In a way. It's, I see. Well, it's 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 definitely an octave, and and there's and there's you know like it's rich because it has those those harmonics in it. You know the harmonics actually eventually do make chords. You know like you have the fundamental and the first harmonic, and this is like this is what happens when you cut a string in half. You get a note an octave higher. When you cut it in thirds. That's a third of that link. When you cut it in fourths, that's that note. And when you cut it again, you get that one. Eventually, you get a nice triad. But if you keep going, you get like a, a bluesy chord, you know? Right. Like the, 
So, and, and every every instrument has a harmonic and every vo- human voice. That's why they can do, uh, you know, voice detection now. Uh, but, 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 by the way. Hang on. For, remember what you're just about to say, by the way. Okay. Do you remember that? Yes. I got it. So when you hear Pavarotti sing and you uh-huh. and then you hear Sinatra sing, Sinatra is closer to Louis Armstrong because he's also hitting more than one note. Is, is that fair to say that Sinatra? No, I think Sinatra and Pavarotti are are pretty far away from what what Louis Armstrong is doing with his voice. But Sinatra uh, bends still, the notes, though. Yes, he does. He, he he has that jazz inflection. He 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 figured out. He studied either formally or informally jazz phrasing and jazz. Uh, but he doesn't. He he's not necessarily a bluesy singer. But he does, He's but, trying to uh, find. He goes away from the note and then comes to it, right? Yeah, he slides into notes. Yes, right. he has a loose. Looser interpretation of the pitch, yes, and that's de- very definitely a jazz thing, you know, that, right. that you know to slide into a pitch. Uh, classical singers do it too, to some degree, especially the the tenors. Some they get to the high note, they have to introduce some, they have to introduce some like tension to get the note to resonate. You know, they call it the, I think it's called the squealo. There's a there's a cry. You know, there's a cry in Pavarotti's voice when he goes, well, that's there because it helps him set the vocal cords. Right. And uh, it's 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 not it's very emotional, but it's also it's functional. It's, you know, so he was a great singer. Music pops up because because humans make music. In other words, music wasn't brought to cultures by invading cultures it just it's a it's a natural thing that humans make animals make music right well there's an interesting study of bird song and how bird song um which is the closest maybe to actual like human music making you know it's instinctual it's it's something that must be done but it's interesting. There are certain species of birds whose uh, song changes with their locale just a few miles, and certain uh, certain species of birds whose bird song changes with the with the uh, temperature with the with the seasons. Why was, that why was Charlie Parker? Why was Charlie Parker? Why was he called Bird? Well, there's a lot of different stories. Uh, in my book, there's a there's a new one that's promulgated, and you have to read the last chapter to figure that one out. But the story is that he was on the road with Jay McShann, and uh, they were in their bus or in a car going to a gig, and they hit a chicken. A chicken ran across the road, and 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 Charlie Parker loved chicken, and so he said, "Stop the car! I'll go back and get that yard bird." A yard bird is a chicken, and he went back, and then he had somebody cook it up for him. But uh, there's also that he just he really liked chicken. Um, I don't know; it it just kind of stuck. Um, 
certainly, you know, Bird lives. At the, after he died, people, that was a graffiti that was very popular. People would write Bird Lives everywhere, Eric, you know. Eric Clapton's band was called the Yardbirds. Is that named after Charlie Parker? You know, I don't know. I sure like the Yardbirds, but I knew about the Yardbirds before I knew about Charlie Parker. You know, I came to the jazz thing pretty late in my 20s after being, you know, pretty much. I just wanted to listen, listen and play rock and roll. And, uh, but yeah, I, that's an interesting point. I've never, never, uh, read that explained. Because the graffiti but, that um, we grew up with was Clapton as God. Oh, you did? I mean, that there was, wasn't Clapton as God? Wasn't that? I would have written, I would have written next to that ultra rash statement. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So tell me about the book. How do we buy it? How do we make? This okay, Dorrance, Dorrance, uh, the Dorrance Bookstore, D-O-R-R-A-N-C-A, Dorrance or Dorrance, I'm not sure. And you can get it on Amazon, and I would think in a few days it'll be up in Barnes & Noble, anywhere you can buy your books. And then the... Um, and give them the, a good the review. Audio. What's that? And give it a good review. Yeah, if you, if you buy it, give it a good review after you read it, you know. I think it's a good read. Um... I'm going to, I have a website going up once everything is accomplished and I've got the uh, audio book ready to go and the, um, and the CD, which I'm very excited about. Uh, we mixed it, spent all day mixing, kind of getting to a final mix of stuff. I hate mixing. Uh, it's so tedious, you know, listening to the same thing over and over and over again. And how about a little more reverb there, you know? Okay, take a little mid, that needs a little more, you know, EQ on the, on the mid section. No, no, that's too much. It's kind of like, I don't know what it's like. It's sort of like, uh, um, it's totally different than creating the, creating the music is so easy for me, you know, but getting it to a final product that I'm, I'm really impatient. And I think, um, that's not a good thing when you're going to put something out and it's going to be kind of locked in. You know, you can't take somebody's CD back and and fix it after they've bought it. But um, you reissue it's, it. <laughs> that's right. Re, the the re, remix. The remix. That's why they re, that's why they re, re uh, master things, you know, because people get it wrong. You know, the Beatles have remastered their stuff or had their stuff remastered many times, you know. But anyway, um, you have a new song with Rosanna Eckerd. You want to hear that? Yeah. What, what have you been reading? What do you, anything, what's been on your mind? I haven't talked to you in two weeks. Well, um, I was, I've been reading the, the my hometown paper and um, nothing, just a lot of <laughs> drug arrests. Those people up there, they did really love their methamphetamines, man. And evidently it's, if you use a phone to, to do a drug deal, that's in itself an offense. Did you know that? No. Well, David, there's a, there's something you might want to just stick away in case you ever need that. So you're not allowed to use... I've been reading about yeah. money laundering. I've been reading about money laundering for the next novel. But, uh, but in my hometown, they did well, an amazing thing. Tell me thing. about my, 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 my money laundering. And are well, you I'm, I'm trying to learn 
about it. You know, I've got this book called that's in, in process called The Executor, which is about a guy who uh, becomes the executor of a very rich man's event, uh, estate who had no heirs. And it turns out that uh, he's been laundering money for the Kansas City mob, you know. And um, so it's, you know, I'm just trying to figure out, well, what, it, what is exactly that does that mean, you know. And uh, there's a ton of ways to launder money. It gets harder and harder. So I'm reading a really good book written by a guy who was uh, headed a task force to um, stop money laundering. There's a lot of, and, and also cash smuggling, which is different than money laundering, but it's the same idea. You're hiding, you're hiding your cash. Billions get smuggled out of the United States. Billions of cash goes to uh, banks in Costa Rica and uh, Donald Trump. The, yeah. So he can buy. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows what he can buy? Hey, I have to find hey, I, Turtle. I watched the, David, I watched the hearings. Yes. And I was enamored of the judge, Michael Ludig, and his careful delivery of every... It's like me trying... <laughs> Did you like, watch that cat? Did yeah. you watch that cat? It's like me dealing with customer service. <laughs> this is how I got... You know that I got a new washer and dryer doing that? To customer service 20 years ago? What, are you talking slow? I would no. slow talk. Uh, Comcast <laughs> or my cable company was charging me like an extra $10 a month for five years. So you slow talk them? And, and, and I, they, they wouldn't refund it. I wanted it all back. Yeah. And they said it was in the system. You, you don't know about my slow talking Customer service? No, no. So did you teach that ludic guy how to do that? Anytime <laughs> that you're judge? on, you get on the phone with customer service, you have to do it to a supervisor. And you say, hello, I'm <laughs> David <laughs> Feld. Yes, sir. It's it's the old Bob and Ray. Remember the slow talker routine from Bob and Ray? Oh, yeah, that's they, right. Yeah, they that's start right. finishing my sentence and I just <laughs> and they, they will do anything to get, to rid, get of rid of you. Just slow talk customer service and they will. I'm going to. Yeah. How do I put that to work? I got to get that going. That guy was amazing. I, I was falling out of my chair. I was just leaning forward. Yeah, and I thought, oh my God, he's he's stroking out. Yeah, but he stroking was just. Out. <laughs> I, he also had. I don't know if you noticed, but he had like a little before he would speak. There was like a little. <laughs> there was a little sound each time. There's a check. Go back if it's on tape. There's a little sound he does. <clears throat> well, yeah, that How was about um, the ears on that Jacob guy. <laughs> There was a, that was a good triumph thing. Oh, <laughs> Hashtag. He's a flight risk. He's, uh, he's ready. He can, he's ready to fly. 
I don't know. My 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 family has big ears. I don't know if you can see. I didn't get it. My dad had big ears and my brother has big ears. Sorry, Dan, if you're listening, but your ears are big. <laughs> but in the 60s, we could grow our hair out, you know? Right. So it would cover it up, you know? We could do the hippie thing. <laughs> but that guy's ears, and, uh, <laughs> they were preternatural. <laughs> <laughs> well my joke yeah. was he's, he spent his entire life going why is everybody shouting at me <laughs> why, why does everybody shout? why is everybody shout? oh man uh, hey so I have a uh, can you talk about past triumph things that you've done I yes as long as it doesn't involve the current the recent uh, the, yes the Okay, the, I was watching, I, you know, I did a little Googling, and uh, there was a, he went to, um, for Conan, he went to Chicago, to that hot dog place where everybody's With so Jack rude. McBrayer. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. That is, everybody's listening, you ought to go watch that. It's, it's amazing. And they loved him. They, they, <laughs> mm -hmm. And then he went in the back, and he was... <laughs> That was, did you help write some the, of that? It's the Wiener Circle, yeah, of course, yeah. You we, did? Yeah. Did you, were you there for that? I believe I was. I believe I was. Wow, that was amazing. Yeah. That was There's, quite amazing. The, the Triumph the Insult Comic Dog is absolutely hy hysterical. The best Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, in my, the Ur-text of Triumph okay. the Insult Comic Dog. I want to know dog this, I want to know this. Is he got kicked out of the Westminster Dog Show. This was before I knew Triumph. This was... One of the earliest triumph. He he went to the Westminster Dog Show, and he wouldn't stop humping the beautiful <laughs> dogs. So he gets thrown out, and then he comes back the next year disguised as Ed Bradley from Sixty Minutes. He's got the beard. How did he do that? He, he wore a beard, a beard, and he had hair. Wore a hairpiece. And I, he said, this is Ed Bradley from 60 Minutes. I'm not Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. I don't even know who he is. This is Ed Bradley. And it is, the word genius, it, it's art, it is artistic. It is, a, it is, it is beyond comedy. To, to just, it, it, I, I just, the ability for Robert in a moment, to go where he goes with the wordplay that he has, you know, like come up with so quickly. <laughs> it's, just, it's just brilliant. It's amazing. But yeah. watch, watch, watch the, uh, the one where Triumph is Ed Bradley. I think it's Dadaism. Okay. I think it's Dadaism, what he ends up doing uh, inadvertently. There's a moment mm, okay. where the dog is that. the dog is humping a chihuahua, right? <laughs> and then suddenly he's afraid he's gonna like security thinks it's gonna be Triumph. So Robert kicks he's humping the Chihuahua and the Ed Bradley wig and beard fall off. And then while he's humping the Chihuahua, he's afraid that he's that he's going to be spotted. So Robert kicks the beard, the Ed Bradley beard and toupee into the shot. And then Triumph <laughs> says, it's me, Ed Bradley. It's, it's, it's such a, a level. It's, it's, 
is like, this is a pipe. You know, it's just so, I watch it, I go, how do you do that? How do you kick the beard into the shot and then have Triumph? Where do you get that idea that, that now it now Triumph can say, this is Ed Bradley, not Triumph? Anyway, I'm, I've, I've now ruined, yeah. I've ruined it. You've ruined, this, you've ruined, ruined the thing. You, no, you yes. haven't. You know, have. that's, if it's funny, it's funny every time you watch it. Yeah. You know, like funny is funny every time you watch it. I've told you about me playing... Uh, um, uh, Robert Klein's show, right in Chicago. You played on his show. Well, he he did. He had a corporate gig. You know, it was a huge banquet, and he needs and, a band. And and and, and uh, well, <clears throat> we did. Was we he were finally able to stop his leg? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but he came out, and they were so rowdy. And he came out and goes. He said something. Said, "Okay, we're going to start this over." He came out seven times, made a bit out of coming out, and they're, they're too rowdy, you know. And finally, so he's doing his thing, and I've heard, I've heard him many, many times. Same jokes, and I was, I could, I was hysterically laughing. Because it's music. Why? The is, it's the jokes. Yeah, it, we've talked about, I think we've talked about this before. It is music, and it's, it's like, music. it's funny. Even if you've heard it before, it's funny, you know. The way he funny is funny. Well, but the way he said because he's not doing. It's the way he does the joke. It's the way he does. It's music. It's a song. Yeah. It's like some people say funny things, and some people just say things funny. Like yeah. Laura House. Yes. Just says things funny. We She's have, just funny. We have to have her back on the show. I can, yeah. She hasn't yeah. been on. A, is she down here? Is she in Texas still? I, I don't know. No. There's some people who stopped doing the show, and I can't remember if we've had a falling out or they just haven't been on the show. I think Laura's in the category of she just hasn't been on the show, but I have to check my notes. She, she got pretty busy being the showrunner for that right, uh, that show right. in the UK, yeah, which I, was very successful, yeah. I think. She's so funny. All right. We should hey, have. this song. You want to play this song? Yes, I do. And then we're going to play. It's, it's a very beautiful song. It's not funny. It's it's called Fading Into Blue. And it's all about. Uh, it's going to be on the next album, not the Charlie Parker. Album. It's going to be on the next album. I was going to ask I already you did that. some some stuff today. Anyway, you I have a you new like album it. coming out. Yeah, I'm going to, we got the Charlie Par Saving Charlie Parker, the album. It's called The Sweet Saving Charlie Parker, the audio book and Saving Charlie Parker, the novel. And of all those. The audio book is the one I'm most, I think is, because it'll have, it'll yeah. have a, it has, these are the audio cues that go with the audio book, little bitty songs. Now, is this, is this on it or not? The music, this one here, no, this is on, this is going to be on the next album. Good. All right. And somewhere I'm going to do, I'm going to do an album of, of, uh, an album called Feldman Maybe Do It. Of Feldman songs, some point in the future, I promise. Okay? okay, and I need to find Turtle. I'm getting requests right now for Turtle. Oh, we remixed Turtle. It's even better. We remixed oh, it. We'll send it. Rosanna to did. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you the remix. Okay. okay. New music fading into blue. New music. I have to find it. Hang on. I'm gonna, I'm gonna mute myself. Uh, keep talking because I had it and. I've been away for a I'm week. I'm going to keep talking. I forgot how the control board works here, so hang on. 
Uh, this grew out of a poem I was working on. I write poetry. This is kind of a serious song about, but it should make you feel better. Okay. I hope. We need to feel better. Yes. Mike Steinel Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckert. Thank you. 
Mike Steinel is a jazz trumpeter, composer, educator. He's a member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 1987 to 2019, author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary. His latest is Running the Changes. And Go by Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet, featuring Rosanna Eckert, who you just heard singing. This one's recorded on Origin. Go buy that. His new book, if that's not enough, his newest book, his newest novel, is Saving Private... Saving Charlie (laughs) Parker. Saving Charlie Parker. I almost... They wouldn't take... They wouldn't take him in the... He had a physical. They wouldn't take him. And uh, how do we get that? We get that uh, we're all great books are sold, right? Anyway, I just just Google it. It should pop up any any day now, wherever you buy your books. And and you can order it at your local bookstore and they'll get it in. And you can uh, and uh, you go to my well, we'll talk about uh, if somebody wants an autograph copy, how to make that happen. You I have a way to do that. That that song just knocked me out. That, that I don't know why, but it just not it, in terms of just some, you know, it was like, you know, like you've heard of ASMR where it, yeah, you sure. get a massage, like it's a self, there's something about her voice. Yeah. It just felt like somebody was the whole mix. Who was playing drums on that? That's my band, Steve Barnes, uh, Carl Hillman on bass and the great Pat Coyle on piano. Wonderful musician from Nashville. Wow. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're we get along great. We make music together well. You and, sure do. Uh, they're just beautiful people, and they yeah. play beautifully. Yeah. I hope it made you feel better. Yeah, yeah. Music, music might be what saves us. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. You know, maybe yeah. so. Yep. I love you, buddy. Thank you for doing. Same this. here. Right back at you. Thank you. See my, you next week. My best Bye-bye. to Nadine. Thank you. Well. That's almost our show. Let us now go to Mexico, back to Mexico. We were there earlier. Uh, well, we'll end with Rodrigo. Let's first talk to a Florida man. Hello, Florida man. Who is uh, Florida man? Can you hear me? Why can't I hear Florida man? What is going on? Could be me. Let's try Rodrigo in Mexico. Can you? Can I hear you? Hi, Davis. Okay. I'm just printing something quick. 
Okay, you're multitasking. Uh, I don't know why I can't okay, hear. I'm done. You're done. Is Benji here? I'm sorry. Is Benji still here? Uh, Benji, are you there, Benji? No, Benji. We'll go to you, Rodrigo. What is on okay. your What is on so, your mind tonight? What is white privilege? What is male privilege? If you're not a class reductionist leftist, hearing that you have some form of privilege is news to you. You have worked hard your whole life. You probably haven't had a rich godfather to get you into a good school or into a good job. What is this privilege those crazy leftists keep talking about? The basis of this question is a bad faith misunderstanding fostered by society. You don't grow up thinking I have weight or male privilege. If anything, you're vaguely aware that black drivers are more likely to get shot than, one driver, than white drivers for no reason. Maybe you've heard that as of 2019, women make 81 cents and black women make 61 cents for every dollar non-Hispanic white men earn. It's estimated that this costs black women workers around $50 billion a year in involuntarily forfeited earnings, a large and recurring loss to the black community. We're certainly not supposed to realize, unless we witness it ourselves, that all women have to work harder, all non-Hispanic, non-white men have to work harder, and all black women have to work hardest of all to get to the same starting line every day. I'm not going to go into the theory of how and why this happens. I just want to point out that we're not supposed to be consciously aware that this is normal, and it has always been normal. It sometimes feels unfair to see any effort to make it up to black men or white women, or sometimes the Kamala Harris's of the world when you don't get yours. And here's where the analysis of someone like Pascal Robert comes in. Kamala Harris is promoted above her competence because she is willing to play ball with the establishment and hardball with poor people. She's not just an exception that confirms the rules work. She's lifted and made unique by virtue of her willingness to play a game where prisoners in California, many of them white, were kept in prison longer than they should because California needs cheap firefighters to fight fires all the time. Her willingness to fight courts over the right of California to chain labor. So, white and or male privilege is real, but it's also a hallucination. You can fight it, you can make it better without advocating for socialism, you can't even realize it's there unless you're willing to not look the other way when you see someone in your exact same circumstances being punished for being less male or less white than you. Double pot here. You don't enjoy this privilege because you're not supposed to notice. And I'll go to a well-known example again that the minimum wage hasn't gone up in the US since 2007. Where is your privilege as a white male in this? It consists of knowing black males, women, and black women have it worse than you. That's it. That's the only actual advantage you get out of your phantom privilege. You're supposed to be grateful for it. 
It's supposed to keep you warm at night as your children go to bed hungry and your less lucky friends get evicted for missing a payment you can't help them with. So yes, it's a real thing, but also it doesn't help you. It just keeps you from realizing that the price of keeping other people down is keeping everyone down. I was listening earlier and you finally repeated a number I told you many, many episodes ago, that police actually solve 2% of crimes. It's hard to believe we spend so much on law and order and get so little law and order out of it. But do you remember the Uvalde sheriff who claimed he spent 44 minutes trying different keys? The video isn't public yet, but some investigators have told journalists that the security tapes show the local cops not even trying to get into the rooms where the shooter was, which some investigators believe the shooter could not have locked. This is a community where 40% of the budget goes to the local cops. Thank you. As always, you, uh, as always I appreciate your uh, contributions, Rodrigo. Thank you. Uh, hey, David, can you hear me, brother? Yes, I can. We have a Florida man, and then we'll go to Cameron. Hey, happy late Father's Day, you mother. <laughs> Thank you. How you been doing, man? I mean, you know, besides the incarceration thing. Well, we can't talk about that. <laughs> hey, I'm uh, I'm surprised you bonded out so quickly, man. I mean, with your, uh, I was thought for sure with your questionable wit, you might get uh, sent to the box, but hey, uh, <laughs> you didn't get any trouble for gunning, did you? Any trouble for what? Gunning. What's that? You didn't do any gunning. In, if you don't know what gunning is, you weren't in there long enough. Uh, <laughs> gunning is masturbating while you're staring at female corrections officers. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> if they catch you doing that, brother, you're going straight to the box. Mm. So I've heard. So I've heard. <laughs> I couldn't do that. I'm, I'm a little bashful myself, you know, but I do like to masturbate to sad movies, though. Really? I can't, I can't resist a good tearjerker, man. <laughs> I just, I love a movie that requires a lot of tissues. <laughs> you should see when old Yeller's on, man. Holy shit, man. I got the whole box of tissues. <laughs> oh, but hey, no. man, uh, on, a, on a different subject, man, uh, I took the advice of a marriage counselor. Yeah. Uh, I didn't seek one out. You know, I just happened to run into one at the uh, weed man's house, but <laughs> but he did tell me something useful. Uh, yeah. He told me to treat my wife like I did when we were dating. Yeah. So I took her out to dinner. We had sex in the car. Then I dropped her off at her parents' house. <laughs> Dude's a genius, man. <laughs> kind of freed me up to spread myself around a little bit. Yeah. I'm a giver, David, man. I, I like to share my penis with those who don't have one. <laughs> I mean, it's only right. Yes. yes. No. My wife, uh, my wife said, there's no I or me in our marriage. There's only a we. I said, well, we slept with your sister yesterday. <laughs> No, she's still upset, man. Yeah. Not about that, but she just found out that they're removing that little penis vein from the top of the Snickers candy bars. <laughs> she kind of, she likes that kind of dark veiny feeling on her lips, I guess. You know, mm. Familiarity, I guess. Yeah. Kind of makes her feel at home. But. Uh-huh. Hey, speaking of that, hey, did I ever tell you that my penis was in the Guinness Book of World Records? No. Well, until the librarian came over and kind of made me take it out. But. <laughs> <laughs> No, hey, man, it's late, man. That's all I got tonight, brother. But I'm good to see you again, man. All right, I love you, Friday Benji. Night, our, love Flor- you, our Florida man, Cameron. Hello, Cameron. Cameron. 
You have to unmute. Where are you calling from, sir? Cameron? Going once. Going twice. Going three times. I guess we don't have Cameron. All right. Next time. We'll do it next time. I want to thank all our guests uh, for coming on the show today. But first, I want to thank our listeners for joining us in the Zoom room. If you would like to join us in the Zoom room in our virtual studio audience, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit attend a live taping, or when the show is live, hit pay-per-view and it'll take you right in. Join us for office hours every Friday night, starting at 8 p.m. Go to my website for the link, hit attend office hours and the link will show up. Also, subscribe to my newsletter. It comes out every Friday with an invitation to office hours. If you didn't get the invitation for office hours, just go to my website and hit the link for hit office hours and uh, give us a good review wherever you're listening to this show and share it with your friends, please. We have a YouTube channel, so please subscribe to that. I'd like to thank Jason Miles and Pascal Robert. Listen to them over at This Is Revolution Podcast. Thank you to Howie Klein. Read him over at Down With Tyranny. Thank you to David Cobb. Follow him on Twitter at David K. Cobb. Thank you to Dr. Harriet Fraud. Listen to Capitalism Hits Home. Peter B. Collins, go to peterbcollins.com, peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of this man's podcasts, radio shows, and interviews. Thank you, Adnan Hussein, Professor Adnan Hussein. Listen to the Mudgeless podcast as well as Guerrilla History. And of course, thank you to Mike Steinel. Go pick up his new book, Saving Charlie Parker. This show is produced by Dan Frankenberger, Professor John, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, Hannah Feldman, Sarah Bush, Andy Brown, and Grace Jackson. I cannot do the show without them, and I can't do the show without everybody who comes into the virtual studio audience and makes this show so interesting please go to my website and join us in the Zoom room. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. I ain't talking about East Germany. I'm talking about Tennessee. Quarantine camps for the uninformed people that are still in refusal to be vaccinated. Look, if that don't bother you, you might as well show up at another church next week because I'm going to keep raising Cain about all this nonsense. I don't care what Bill Lee says. I don't care what fraudulent fake Joe Biden says. I don't care what Planned Parenthood says. I don't care what Chris Cuomo says. I don't care what Gavin Newsom says. I don't care what Nancy Pelosi and her insurrectionist nonsense has to say. You better wake up, church. You better wake up. They hate us. 
We are speed bumps to the deep state on the road to their progressive communism. And I'll shout it from the rooftop if I'm the last one. I live by what I say and I will die by what I say if I have to. I'll fight this garbage until my dying breath. Sitting next to Bill Crystal, man. I mean, the architects of a catastrophe that have cost this country trillions of dollars, thousands of lives, there should be accountability. We should not, if there are no regrets for the failed assumptions that have so grievously wounded this nation, I don't know what happened to our politics and media accountability, but we need it, Bill, because this country should not go back to war. We don't need armchair warriors. And if you feel so strongly, you should, with all due respect, enlist in the Iraqi army. That's a very cute line. Could you, no, no, people, but it's real. A million, a million look, look Iraq, at the displaced. Thousands of people being killed. Can I just make a point? A million Iraqis have been displaced. You yes. read that story, humanitarian aid for what we have done to that country is a crime. We have done and to that should, country. Let me finish. Um, there are some who. I uh, feel like that, you know, the conditions are such that they can attack us there. My answer is bring them on. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> 75. The AIDS diet plan helped me lose 28 pounds. AIDS helps control your appetite so you lose weight. Yet AIDS lets you taste, chew, and enjoy. And the appetite suppressant in AIDS is not a stimulant. AIDS helped me to lose 18 pounds, and it doesn't contain anything to make me nervous. Question, why take diet pills when you can enjoy AIDS? AIDS helps you lose weight without making you jittery. It's like the race hoax industry. If you see a noose on a college dorm of a black student, the odds are overwhelming that the noose was put there by a black student. If you see the N-word on a dormitory building, the odds are overwhelming that a black student actually did that. We're filled with race hoaxes. Why? To show how racist the country is, we need these hoaxes. Jesse Smollett is the most famous. Uh, critical race theory. It was very good, very informative. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate Thank you, Mark. It. Now, on the Princeton point here, you and I have discussed it. it at the college level, this is this fair game. Like Go ahead and do it, right? I mean, I remember 20 years old going to Trier, Germany, and trying to find the home of Karl Marx because, you know. 1848, he wrote Mein Kampf. I want to know what it was all about. So that's part of the education in America, if you so choose. So uh, that's that. More to come. Green Mile. Uh I want to give you a little history on homelessness. 1910, Hitler decided to live on the streets for a while. So for two years, Hitler lived on the streets and practiced his oratory and his body language and how to connect with this, and then went on to lead a life that's got him in the history books. So a lot of these people, it's not a dead end. They can come out of this, these homeless camps and have a productive life. I'm 
I'm a porcine gourmand of the art of romance. I'm a maestro of the boudoir when I take off my pants. All of this is true, all of the above. I wouldn't lie to you, cause I'm a pig for love. Appetite's rapacious, but my capacity is dim. I seem so audacious, some call me Gentleman Jim. When all is said and done, and push comes to shove, I'm second to none, cause I'm a pig for love. suspicious please pardon me if i'm somewhat repetitious like a hand in a glove i'm a pig for love yeah i'm a pig for love He's a pig for love. He's a pig for love. He's a pig for love. 